Doing, doing it through an additional subsidy rather than doing it through a conditional subsidy does help because if you do it through an additional subsidy, you're basically outsourcing the question of what is the most efficient way to do this to whoever's going for the subsidy. But if you do a conditional subsidy, you're basically saying, we need the private sector to do this, the public sector can't do it. But also the public sector does know how it should be done. And if the private sector does it on its own, it's gonna do it all wrong. There's an anecdote that came out after the fact where um, someone at a hedge fund was in a cab and the cab driver was talking about how much money he was making on some company, some stock. He didn't really know what it did. He thought it was a biotech stock and it turned about it turned out to be this 3x levered inverse volatility exchange traded note. So really complicated financial product. Um, it did well for a while and then basically went to zero overnight uh, during Volmageddon. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. And I'm very excited to bring you what is an extraordinary episode to round off season five of From the New World. I'm speaking with Bern Hobarts, the author of the Diff newsletter at thediff.co, a newsletter about finance, but really is one of the people who truly integrates areas of knowledge from just a vast, vast variety of walks of life in an exceptionally competent way. And you'll see exactly what I mean as we jump into the episode. We discuss anecdotes versus data, organizational incompetence and bureaucracy, OpenAI, how OpenAI's funding structure works, venture capital, Silicon Valley environment, over and under investing in startups, democracy, libertarianism, Gnosticism, and the value of crystallized knowledge. This one's almost four hours and I really can say that there wasn't even one dull moment in the entire thing. As always, if you like the show, you can subscribe for a new episode every week. And the best way to help us out, if you liked it, is to let a friend know, either in person or online. The odds are, not only are you helping us grow the podcast, but you're also helping your friend, or whoever you're sharing it to, uh, find something that they find interesting and informative. Without further ado, here's Bern Hobarts. We are rolling. So first question, in investing, uh, are anecdotes and narratives kind of overrated or underrated? Anecdotes are underrated once you have a lot of data. So there's this not uncommon phenomenon where there's some kind of, um, there's some kind of positive feedback loop in a market and as long as that feedback loop is in place, you can be correct that the market is moving in the wrong direction, whether it's housing prices are too high or it's, you know, tech stocks are doing are, you know, too high also or, or, what, or um, you know, the economy is terrible and it can't stay terrible forever. Like whatever, whatever it is, you can find lots of data that confirms that thesis. And then sometimes anecdotes are the only way to tell whether the data is the result of lots of very reasonable people making very sensible decisions, or if it's the result of um, people who, like if the marginal trader, the marginal price setter is, has no idea what they're doing and is, um, is taking more risk than they should. So there's this story from um, early 2018, there was this incident called Volmageddon, where um, volatility 
spiked massively, stocks briefly dropped. And one of the reasons for that was that there were these financial products that were consistently shorting volatility in a levered way. And through the mechanics of this, it ended up basically pushing volatility down over time and creating this very large levered bet that volatility would continue to be low. And there's an anecdote that came out after the fact where um, someone at a hedge fund was in a cab and the cab driver was talking about how much money he was making on some company, some stock. He didn't really know what it did. He thought it was a biotech stock. And it turned about it turned out to be this 3x levered inverse volatility exchange traded note. So really complicated financial product. Um, it did well for a while and then basically went to zero overnight um, during Volmageddon. And I think when you when you look at this phenomenon from the out, when you're doing the kind of data driven approach, you could end up saying, "Hey, I think volatility is just going to be systematically lower. Like investors have more data, they have more real time data." Markets are getting more efficient, therefore we should expect that the steady state for volatility is lower than it used to be. And then we, you know, you can also kind of respect people who figured out the trade to do based on that. But then if you talk to those people and realize, wait, these people are not actually making this really sophisticated bet. In fact, they're making like the marginal buyer of this product is the least sophisticated investor you can imagine. They don't even know what they're buying. They don't realize it's a levered derivative and not a company then at that point you can be more confident that it's time to bet against it. It doesn't um it doesn't nail the timing, but it does seem to work. And you know, there's there are stories um from people who were betting against housing in the mid two thousands where the thing that gave them confidence was not their analysis of the housing market and you know new home starts and the average FICO scores of um of mortgages. It was just talking to people on the other side of the trade and realizing these people did not understand how the housing market had changed and how the mortgage market had changed. And then you can go back even further. And um, there's the story of Joseph Kennedy, who allegedly stole all of his stocks because he got a stock tip from a shoeshine boy, which I'm sure didn't happen exactly that way. But I'm also sure that if you have made a lot of money in a bull market and you notice that the the buyer is less and less sophisticated and has less and less of a sense of what they're doing and is probably more and more levered, then you know that it's getting close to the end. Right. I think I made a joke with Brian Kaplan that if you kind of had a democratic ETF, you know, what, what just one person, one vote for what the ETF invests in, then like doing an inverse ETF of that would kind of be very profitable. Um, yeah. In, in effect, a lot of hedge funds on the systematic side, they will do that. They They look at social media chatter and one of the reasons they do that is if you if you are betting on a bunch of stocks and you're doing some kind of systematic value or systematic momentum or whatever, like one of the things you want to figure out is what is pushing the stock price to where it looks like a good buy or where it looks like a good short. And if your data indicates to you that the reason that the stock price is moving where it's moving is that very sophisticated investors have a very strong view and they're pushing it in that direction, then that tells you as a systematic investor, okay, maybe maybe we'll leave this one to the people who are actually reading the SEC filings and you know doing the channel checks and all that stuff. But if if you find that some stock screens really well on momentum and then you find that it's also something that people are talking about a lot on, on Discord and on Reddit and on Twitter, then you can be a little more confident that, again, the marginal buyer is not uh, not insanely sophisticated and is potentially 
pretty levered and will will have to liquidate quickly if the stock moves in the opposite direction. So yeah, they do they look at that kind of chatter specifically to find cases where they feel comfortable betting against the against the median retail investor. Right. I think this makes sense for for basically public companies um for, for things that are really approachable is, is there a kind of like shadow of this in private companies or in vc is, is there a version of this where there's yeah there, there's some kind of like mimetic contagion going on in vcs and that's how people learn to avoid like basically it d- does the same thing happen for kind of private companies or like seed stage companies you can definitely see some of that because there are just different investor populations that are more likely to get to things early or get to things late or just more likely to have not strictly economic reasons to want to make a bet. So if you are, for example, looking at some company, you're looking at investing in a private round for that company, and you notice that one of the biggest investors in that round is like a strategic investor, like a strategic VC, you know, the VC arm of some operating company whose business could be affected by the success or failure of the startup. That doesn't, it's not necessarily the case that those investors are going to be worse, but it is the case that they can get a positive payoff, even if the investment itself does not work out that well. So if you are, um, you know, if you're investing in a company, it makes makes some product, and the biggest investor in that round is a is a customer for that product. There's a, it's reasonable to at least consider the possibility that the reason that round happened was that the strategic investor wants to be able to negotiate with other suppliers more effectively, and they know that if there's one more supplier and that supplier is well capitalized and is trying to grow market share, it's way easier to get a better deal. So you can look at at things like that, um, and then you know there are, there are all sorts of adverse selection questions when you're looking at typical rounds, and um, those. I think the main one is actually on the positive side, which is basically if there's a really promising company and it's clearly a good deal, then you should bet that. Um, you are you are much less likely to actually get into that round unless you have some personal connection with the founders or you have some kind of value that you specifically can add. So um, that tends to truncate a lot of the returns because the really good companies, they you know if Sequoia wants to write a check or if A16Z wants to write a check or you know there's a, there's that set of firms where if they want to be in the round, they will they will end up leading it and they will get the allocation they want and then everyone else has to kind of hope that there is still some room in the round for them as well. Um, but on the on the other side, you know, looking at specifically bad deals, it's actually harder to get good data on that and harder to find just these signals for, okay, this company's not going to do well because that's already the, the modal outcome. Like most of the time you do not get your money back or do not get anything back. And it doesn't, um, so like finding a signal right, so correlates with failure rate. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of there are some signals where they correlate with failure, but they also correlate with extreme outlier success. So just a lot of mm. a lot of weird companies are run by weird people. And so you if you can immediately imagine like 20 distinct ways that this could go absolutely disastrous, then you can also potentially imagine just one way that it could go extremely well. And that's really all that matters. Right, right. Yeah, I think we're going to we're going to get into this, uh, the kind of funding of OpenAI, but I think like just to just to hold the audience off a little bit on that, um, I think this makes a lot of sense when you kind of think of it as like 
ideology or as kind of like a founder's perspective or worldview having like actual very clear consequences, right? We're going to talk about this, how um, how Sam, uh, Sam Altman and his conception of AI leads to like open AI being funded the way it is. But like in, in general, like leading into this, what do you think is the kind of relationship between how how kind of out there a founder is or what kind of like weird um either misconceptions or you know true true understandings um unorthodox but true understandings of how the world works founders have what's the connection between that and kind of how they end up structuring and growing their companies um i think you know a lot of this it's it's hard to top zero to one for talking about this kind of thing specifically, but I think one right, of the for phenomena the audience, is on the book is, by Peter Thiel, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I highly recommend it. And it does, it does talk a lot about founders as high variance people. Although Thiel also doesn't like to talk, doesn't like to use statistical terms to talk about founders. There's, there's very much this view that everyone is N of one, like the best founders are N of one and they they aren't part of some meaningful distribution you can talk about, but I still think like the distribution sort of exists and you can kind of gesture at that as a meaningful way to talk about how there are just a lot of people who are concentrated in, in the, the middle of the bell curve. And then you have a set of people who are way out there in various ways. And often if they're way out there in one way, they're, they're also way out there in, in several other ways. And you have to find cases where there's a useful correlation between these traits but um, yeah, going back to like how how someone's how someone's ideology and worldview would affect their funding. Um, one of the funny ways that this shows up is in in cases where it either doesn't occur to someone that a business like this could already exist, or doesn't occur to them that what they're doing might be controversial or illegal. Um, Airbnb is actually an interesting example of both. There's this anecdote. Um, I believe it is actually a Sam Altman anecdote about how. When Airbnb was presenting their to their earliest venture investors, they had a deck, and the deck talked about their um, their total addressable market. And I think I think their guess I forget how many zeros got added to their guess. It was like they might have said they think there's like a twenty million dollar market for their original product. And either Sam Altman said make it two hundred million, or he said make it twenty billion, or something like he added at least one and perhaps multiple zeros to the size of the addressable market. And it turned out that Airbnb was actually in an existing category. They didn't really realize it. I think they had compared themselves more to couch surfing and they kind of come up with this idea independently. But there was this whole ecosystem of vacation home rentals that already existed as a category. Like VRBO had been around for a long time. And um, there were other companies in the space that all kind of got rolled up and are now um, many of them are under, under the Expedia banner. Um, like this, this existed as a category and they, the Airbnb people were sufficiently focused on the, the initial product they launched and on the initial customer experience that they, they were just not strictly aware that there were, there were competitors and this was an existing category, um, which is kind of charming, like, um, being so focused on exactly what you're doing that you don't realize that someone else has been trying to do the same thing is interesting. Um, I believe this also happened with Reddit and Dig where, um, Reddit launched and people would ask the Reddit founders if it was a Dig clone and that's how they learned that Dig existed. Um, <laughs> and But then the other the other thing with Airbnb was um, wouldn't necessarily occur to someone who's starting this business that there might actually be laws against it. And they have had a, a long and interesting struggle to 
get their product legal and make it legal. And um, it existed in this kind of legally ambiguous state where there, um, you know, the laws were not written with a product like this in mind. The transaction cost for short-term rentals of a room in someone's home were so high that it didn't really make sense to treat that as a meaningful category that needed some kind of regulation. But once there's a website and you can search and there are nice professional photos of all the rooms, then it starts to, um, it actually probably exceeds the the quality of the search process on a hotel website or the hotel website, like the actual actual accommodations can be better from the hotel company. But like once it's at the point where it actually beats hotels on some axis, then the hotel companies start to realize um, one of the axes on which Airbnb is superior is it's not paying hotel taxes. And so um, getting it to a point where it's kind of tractable to the legal system and is actually paying taxes is tricky. And this, this actually reaches um, some companies go through this interesting intermediate state where they they start out as this very much, you know, there's always that dichotomy between missionaries and mercenaries. And um, Airbnb definitely seems to have started out as this missionary company where they want people to share their homes, they want people to be able to travel more, all that fun stuff. But then they ended up being in a situation where being somewhat mercenary was actually um, something they had a huge comparative advantage at. Specifically, if Airbnb launches in some city and um, Airbnb, its initial growth spurt was in the the post-financial crisis environment. So lots of people are broke. Lots of people have lost their jobs. They can't really pay their rent unless they find some way to use their apartment or their home to to generate income. Um, So there were a lot of people who through Airbnb could actually not have to leave New York or San Francisco or whatever desirable city they lived in, they also had a fair amount of free time because they were part-time landlords. And so that turned them into a very effective lobbying organization on Airbnb's behalf. And if Airbnb had tried to do things really nicely, and if, you know, instead of being founded by um, three three designers, it was like three designers and three attorneys, and they made sure that everything was legal and lobbied to make it happen before they, um, before they took in their first dollar, it just wouldn't have gotten off the ground. So they do have to have that kind of balance between when they're going to really believe in the mission and then when they are just going to be ruthlessly effective at turning what they've built, turning the business they've built and the community they've built into this temporary powerful lobbying arm in order to ram through the laws that make it long-term legally viable. Um, And I think that that, um, like being able to make that switch does seem to be an important thing for founders to do. Like sometimes they have to be very idealistic and sometimes they have to be ruthless in the service of that ideal idealism. Yes. So, so there's kind of a trade-off when dealing with regulation here, too aggressive or kind of too um, passive. Um, do you think that most companies over or under um, appre- uh, appreciate or are over or under aggressive or or about the same or about correct uh, when it comes to dealing with regulation? Um, I think we, like the market is actually somewhat efficient here where um, the the very high level sketch is small companies don't know what the rules are and violate them. And it's not a huge deal because they're small. And then as they get bigger, they sometimes become painfully aware of the rules and Hopefully, the rule violation has been part of an exploratory process towards finding something that is actually valuable and useful to society and profitable as a standalone business, even if it has to conform to the rules that are governing everybody else. 
Um, and then big companies, they do tend to be pretty risk averse, but that's also quite prudent. Like even if at the senior level, if you could say, we're going to do something where we think it has positive expected value, even given the possibility of a major lawsuit, um, where if we lost the lawsuit, it'd be negative expected value. Or, you know, if we, if we actually got fined for doing this, it'd be negative expected value. Like, even if that is a calculation that can be made at the CEO level, you don't want that to be the calculation that everyone is making throughout the company because um, someone who is um, like everyone at the company can, can theoretically impose these big external costs, but um, they don't actually bear as much of the downside. They do get the upside if things work out. So if you have a company that has this very fast and loose approach with regulation, you will end up with a company where everyone is just systematically breaking the rules all the time. And if they get caught internally, they can just quit and go somewhere else. And it's more of a company scandal than it's a them scandal. The company has better name recognition than the average employee does. Um, so you really, you don't want that. So I think um, the right incentive for big companies is to have a culture of compliance that actually goes goes beyond what the what a naive cost benefit analysis would entail because people people throughout the company have this free option on the upside from breaking the rules and they don't face the same downside right that's interesting um is is this like i i kind of don't think that that's very intuitive like like it seems like they're sheltered from both the upside and the downside right if there's some kind of major breakthrough if there's some kind of huge market expansion does you know like the third um due to the decisions of let's say like some kind of um second or third layer executive does that specific executive reap the expand benefits of expansion more than they are sheltered from the costs of kind of law violation i'm not sure how that pans out is there any kind of like empirical empirical study of this that is a good question. I think so to do a good empirical study you'd also have to look at the the compensation scheme and um which you you could do, you know, especially if the company gets indicted. Um it typically produces a lot of documentation and you could see what kinds of things people's performance was evaluated on and get a sense from that. But then I think the tougher thing to to evaluate is what is the promotion path within that company and how sensitive is it to just what results did you actually get and how sensitive is it to what is the plausible expected value from the work that you did, given that there is some uncertainty about how it'll work out. And, um, you know, companies, a lot of companies try to evaluate people based on that plausible EV calculation and then end up evaluating them on, did it work or did it not? Um, I think if you want to look at an interesting case study in systematic rule bending, GE is, is a good one because they had, they had a very rigorous set of tools for evaluating all of their executives. And um, a lot of those evaluations were based on accounting profits and um, that created this incentive for people to game the system. And there's, um, I think it's the book Lights Out has an anecdote about Jeff Demelt, who um, ended up being CEO of GE um, during the decline, but not during the period when the, the seeds for that decline were sown. So he, he took over, I think, in 2001 or so early 2000s um, from Jack Welch. And there were these anecdotes about Imelt running a plastics business for GE in the 90s and how 
on the last day of the quarter, he would sometimes ask another GE subsidiary to make a big purchase so that he could hit his numbers. So internally, you know, that that looks good when you're just looking at um, which executives are able to hit their estimates every single quarter. But what he's really doing is he's actually um, accumulating this stock of um, this, this debt in terms of favors owed to other GE subsidiaries. And if it's just money moving around within GE, then it doesn't actually have that much bearing on how much wealth is being created by the company. It's more about who is good at gaming the performance reviews. Um, And there are anecdotes in other companies about, um, especially companies that do stack ranking, where um, people basically trade around their employees and say, you know, if you give if you give my person a four out of five then I will give your favorite person a four out of five and then we'll make sure that we each keep our favorite employee and we can agree to let this particular person get a really bad review and get fired. Um, which again, like the the idea behind stack ranking is the hiring process is not going to be perfect and we should identify who's not really contributing to the team and let them go periodically. But it ends up creating this system where it is just as politicized as not having a rigorous stack ranking process. But there's a, an extra layer of kind of adversarial politics or of throwing people under the bus. So it ends up having the same problems as the, the legacy system, but actually being a little bit more pathological. Right. I think like an interesting question when it comes to kind of like internal organizational fights is basically kind of like how reflective they are of self-interest versus kind of evolutionary norms, right? Like, like on one hand, you can kind of have um, you can have like the fully kind of rationalist public choice theory interpretation on the other hand. And, and of course, this is going to be like a subset of people um, who really think about this. But on the other hand, you kind of have the kind of Hansonian take, right? Robin Hanson, he thinks that a lot of it is kind of norm enforcement. People want to homogenize, um, want to homogenize their values. They want to, they would rather kind of argue over their values than argue over um, kind of factual or empirical claims. Um, what kind of organize, what like portion of this sort of organizational misalignment or kind of um, uh, principal agent problem do you think is like legitimately the kind of agent subverting something for his or her own interest? And, and what points of it or what part of it do you think is just kind of like irrationality or incompetence? That's a good question. Cause I think one of, one of the interesting puzzles of the economy generally, and maybe the U S economy in particular is um, people seem to do a better job than they're truly incentivized to do. Um, like every, <laughs> every sufficiently large organization has slackers and things, but there's just a lot of people who work slightly harder than they really have to. And who do, do a better job, have a little more panache than they need. Um, you know, some of them are like working for tips or whatever. And so it, it makes some economic sense there, but um, it seems like a lot of people just have a generally pro-social instinct to do a reasonably good job and um, to not maximally exploit the company in at every opportunity. So I would kind of reverse that question and say like, why, how is it that we have these organizations that are just much, much larger than the kinds of organizations that we are that are in our ancestral environment, and yet right. we actually treat them as you know we we sort of we don't treat them as you know 
as important as the tribe would be if you're a um, you know if you're a Stone Age tribes person. Um, we don't we don't have quite that level of loyalty to the big companies we work for, but we have some level of it. And um, I think some of it is there's like you know there's a there's a cultural thing where um, the U.S. is kind of a has a kind of work centric culture, and it is just seen as socially desirable to to do a good job. And I think that that ends up um, that ends up meaning that you don't have to quantify every single contribution people make and you don't have to just relentlessly analyze every detail of what they do to ensure that it's maximally efficient. Um, some of it, some of it can take care of itself. Um, especially if people are generally happy with the company, happy with their work. Um, I think there's also a, a social trust element where if you have a high trust country and the U S is still relatively high trust and you have a high trust company within that country, um, people tend to assume that if they do a good job, it is more likely than not to be eventually noticed and eventually rewarded. They don't have to negotiate every single time they do anything beyond the minimum of the job requirements. Um, right. But I then, think like something, to, sorry, go on. I was going to say like to, to go to your, your question on like, how much of this is like this this weird signaling thing where people people want to have this sort of recreational fights over stuff that you can argue over endlessly instead of actually solving problems? Um, I like there is definitely some of that, and it is kind of a good measure of organizational health to see how often can things devolve into those questions and how how effectively can people answer those questions because that is. At a sufficiently large and complicated organization, you can just get endlessly bogged down in in those kinds of values questions. And I think implicitly one of the rules of a CEO um, and of senior managers is to figure out what are the company's actual values, you know, value statements and things. People don't really read them, but they do look at the example that that senior managers set and figuring out what those values are and then figuring out what values might be important to someone as an individual, as, you know, a human being who works there, but are not actually important to, to the work that they do and trying to strictly separate those out. I think that becomes increasingly important. I think actually the thing that has made that most important is Slack because Slack mm, makes right. it incredibly easy to gather together a group of people who are all upset about the same issue, have them coordinate, um, text also just, it flattens the, um, it flattens the emotions of, of, words that people use and um that also means that you can apply whatever emotive spin you want so if um you know ceo says something mildly controversial in the main slack channel then in the side channel for complaining about it people all apply the most negative possible spin to it and then you end up with people getting much madder than than is really justified but also reinforcing their beliefs um, and I think there's not like this is just a thing human beings do. Like we love forming tribes, we love forming tribes within tribes. Um, we're always jockeying for power a little bit. But um, one way to one way to avoid that is just making making that not really an avenue for for actually getting getting any kind of authority. Which I think you know Coinbase Coinbase tried to do this, and um, right, they right. Were, I was just about to bring that up. Um, so can you yes. just explain to the audience what happened at Coinbase? Yeah, so Coinbase got some some negative press. They were um, not participating in some political stuff that many other companies were participating in. Um, their their CEO was somewhat averse to that, and what they eventually decided to do was just um, 
they published a blog post saying they're a mission-focused company and saying what that means is they are, um, I don't know the, the exact words, but it was basically they want to promote financial inclusion, promote crypto, and um, make it work for everyone. And to the extent that this intersects with politics, it intersects with politics on things like um, should AML and like should anti-money laundering rules and know your customer rules be stricter or less strict? And what should the capital gains tax be if you got airdropped a token and then sold it? Like those are political issues on which it makes sense for Airbnb or for, for Coinbase as a company to have an opinion. And then for a huge set of political issues, it can make sense for employees to have opinions in their own capacity, but it's just not work related. And um, because they did this at a time when crypto prices were high, people were trading a lot, they were um, making a lot of money, they could also tell people that they'd get generous severance if they just quit. And um, other companies uh, don't necessarily have the opportunity. They don't have this coincidence of here's an external political crisis. It's causing people to spend a lot of time at the company talking about politics and the companies, their their executives have made this judgment that that's just not what they do as a company, even if it's what employees do as individuals. Um, it's it's nice that that coincided with Coinbase having a lot of money and being able to basically pay people to to do that somewhere else. Um, in other cases, it may actually be a lot more challenging for companies to do it. But I think a lot of companies looked at that blog post and uh, like a lot of earlier stage companies looked at that blog post and decided they don't they don't want to have to write that during a crisis. They would rather enforce the norm earlier on. So my guess is like the the post Coinbase generation of companies. Um, it's going to, there are going to be some companies that are mission focused in a broad sense and that embrace having a political identity as part of what they do. And there's going to be another set of companies where they explicitly actively try to avoid it because it, uh, it's just an endless time sink. It's a fun time sink, but um, you don't, you know, if, if people are having too much fun at work and also making each other mad, then um, it's its own indicator that something might be off in the incentive structure. Right, right. So maybe we jump to now a pretty extraordinary case study, and that is, uh, of course, OpenAI. Um, so first of all, going back to you a little bit of our earlier conversation, um, what is Sam Altman's vision of OpenAI, and how has that you know influenced how he funds his company? So with the caveat that I I do not know what is in his heart, um, I <laughs> I think you know based on their public statements, the vision is AI is the most important technology that that anyone could be working on right now is potentially the most important thing that has happened to humanity. Um, you know, maybe maybe writing is more important than the aggregate, but like AI in, in the optimistic case is the most important thing. Um, in the pessimistic case, also the most important thing because we haven't we haven't invented any technology that can kill us yet um, or that has successfully killed us yet. But in theory, um, we could all be paperclip maximized or something. Um, so. The stakes are very high, and it it becomes a fundamentally kind of ideological and almost eschatological company because the impact of what they're doing will be so broad. So originally, it was the idea of OpenAI was that um, there's a lot of AI research happening. It's happening within private companies, and we just don't want one big private company to control all of this. And so they wanted to do research independently, publish a lot share information and be kind of a, a you know, a lab slash think tank that advanced the general state of AI. And then you can, you can apply. Um, and I always like to apply like the, the most cynical possible and most idealistic possible um, 
cast to to any given decision because it's usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. Right, um, although sometimes it's at one end. Um, yeah, so there's so they they switch from being a nonprofit to creating this legal entity, and that entity was a for profit entity, and it raised money from outside investors. So the cynical perspective is. They raised a bunch of money as a nonprofit. They got a bunch of talent together telling people, hey, you can work on this nonprofit and you can um, do lots of cool stuff that doesn't necessarily have a commercial impact. And we'll just, you know, invent the future together and we'll all be very nice people and be very happy with our lives. And then they eventually stumbled on something sufficiently profitable that they decided to actually raise money and just grab the cash while they could. So that's that's the maximally cynical view. Um, or I guess the maximally cynical view is that was the plan all along. And that the the nonprofit thing was like basically a way to make the initial R and D even more tax efficient. Um, then the idealistic view is no. What they realized was actually building powerful AI models requires a significant investment. It requires um, a lot of GPUs running for a very long time. You have to pay your researchers, and um, other companies also want to hire these researchers. And if you're going to top the salary that um, salary plus options that meta or google is offering people then you need to raise outside money and you need to give people some kind of equity like participation in the upside and that is one of the things that they said was that they they didn't want people having to explain to their families that they were going to cut their income by half or by two-thirds because they wanted to work at OpenAI. they would rather be able to pay market rates for a job that turns out to be in very high demand and they did structure it in an interesting way. So it's not like OpenAI was a nonprofit that just suddenly transfigured itself into a startup. It's actually, there's a, a for-profit entity, but the investors in that entity um, in the initial round had their returns capped at 100 times the amount of money they put in. And um, the all of the returns beyond that accrue to OpenAI, the nonprofit. So... Um, and you know 100x is is a good return on the other hand when you think about the distribution of returns from successful startup investing um that's actually like that is the one case where you don't actually want to give up the upside beyond 100x because the the better an investment is the more likely it is like the better your career is the more likely it is to be dominated by just a handful of investments that do so insanely well that nothing else matters um I actually read an right. anecdote on this recently where um Jonah Peretti was the co-founder of Huffington Post and, um, you know, started there, worked there for a long time. Um, that company eventually sold to AOL for $300 million. And he took some of the money that he got from that sale and invested, um, I think it was 10,000 of it into a very early round in Uber and actually ended up making <laughs> more money on the Uber investment than on many years at the Huffington Post. So, right. um, yeah, it's like, the market is so dominated by outliers that um, you really don't want to lose your exposure to outliers unless um, unless you're a strategic investor. So I think this is this is part of Microsoft's thought process for investing in OpenAI is um, one, a lot of that money that Microsoft puts into OpenAI goes right back to Microsoft since OpenAI is doing a lot of their training on Microsoft hardware. And, um, and two, a lot of the products that get created are going to end up being distributed through through Microsoft. Microsoft has insanely good distribution into corporate America and to a lesser extent to consumers. So it is um it's useful for them to to know what the product roadmap is. And um like I I don't know 
I don't know if you could exactly say that if Microsoft could, like if Microsoft, knowing what they know now, would it have been worth it for them to pay $1 billion directly to OpenAI just to be able to play around with GPT-4 for a couple months before it was widely released and then figure out how GPT-4 should integrate with Outlook and with um, Teams and automatically transcribing meetings and summarizing bullet points and things and how it should work with um, suggesting formulas in Excel. Like, I don't know that that is actually worth a billion dollars, but I do think it is it is meaningfully valuable and that staying with, like keeping the feedback loop really tight and knowing what the next AI advance is, is actually worth a lot to them, even if they don't want all of those costs to show up as costs on their income statement. Right. I also think that um, like the, the kind of like naive answer is sort of correct here, where if um, Microsoft just funds OpenAI development, even if they don't capture all of the development, right, even if the, the advantage is more symmetrical or kind of less asymmetric than they might wish it to be, they're still creating a much better world just by virtue of there being more uh, more innovation happening. Right. So I think that that's maybe one other interpretation of like, yeah, it's worth the $1 billion just from the kind of availability of the technology. But um, Right. And that if, like, if you, if you commoditize the idea of someone can take their email inbox and outbox, use that to train a model, the model can answer 85% of their email and sound exactly like them. Like if that becomes a commodity where anyone can just pay open AI and basically get that, then the part that is the complement to that that's not commoditized is the distribution. And um, right. my guess is that, like, Outlook probably, um, it's, like, in terms of total value transferred around the world, Outlook might be one of the dominant media for, for doing that. There's just so many, you know, so many B2B sales happen through Outlook emails, so much um, M&A gets negotiated through that, so many joint ventures and, you know, um, stock and bond underwritings, like a lot of it is happening through Outlook. So um, once, if that feature is commoditized, then distribution becomes relatively more valuable and distribution is, is where Microsoft wins. So yeah, I think that is, that is another case where they could, they could theoretically subsidize this, never make any money on their open AI, open AI investment directly and still make money from the existence of open AI. Yeah. I think this is actually very important for everyone to uh, understand and internalize because, like, I'm sure you've seen the uh, the Dylan Patel the the semi analysis leak, where yes. um, yeah, so I think like a senior Google engineer was talking about not really having a technical moat, and I, I think like that article in and of itself was quite good. But the kind of like takes the kind of interpretations of that article of oh yeah, it's it's like time to like not stop investing in like OpenAI and Google. It's all you know, it's all going to be open. I think that's just like a fundamental misunderstanding of how every technology in history is adopted um and yeah I'm, I'm kind of like one of the things i'm more known for is kind of being bullish or sorry not being bull- being bearish on kind of like the technicals of ai on how much um how much it can accelerate at the same speed so on and so forth right or accelerate at the same pace but in terms of financials, I think the existing companies, mostly for the same reasons that you uh, said, have just an enormous advantage um, when it comes to distribution, certainly. When it comes to just having a kind of documented understanding of a lot of the finicky, finicky features of machine learning models as well, like none of this is kind of like an impossible moat in that it's kind of like 
uh, patent protected or that it's some kind of like indiscoverable technology. But at the point in which you've kind of like learned the one millionth thing about kind of weird activation functions in machine learning networks, that matters a lot more than, you know, like the, the first thing that people learn about weird. Right. Um, yeah, weird activation uh, functions, right? Like, like those kind of just built up accumulated kind of like al- almost like crystallized intelligence versions of this, I think matter a lot, even if they're even if they're like kind of independently discoverable by your kind of open source research organization. They are. Uh, I, I think they matter a lot. And it's a much harder to spot advantage. Like it's, it's much like... If, yeah, yeah, it's all if the if the mode is like a patent, you can just look at the patent, you can see what it does, and then you can start thinking to yourself, okay, how can I accomplish the same end goal without technically violating this patent? But yeah, if it's if it's a process, it's sort of like, you know, TSM's advantage is um they're like they're buying many machines that um outside of China anyone anyone you can buy TSMC? if they have the budget. Yeah, TSMC. Yeah. I, okay. I always I always do that. I always refer to them by the ticker and then remember that everyone else knows they're TSMC. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. but they they also have many decades of process knowledge, and not just process knowledge on um, doing the process, but also process knowledge on training other people to to do the process. And so, you can't really you can't duplicate that without going back through the entire history, and that's a ludicrously expensive proposition. So, it becomes a really great mode, especially because um, you. Like a lot of process knowledge, the reason it's so hard is people can't actually articulate, like the reason it's hard to transmit is people can't really articulate what they're doing and why. They just, they learn to do it, they habituate to it. And um, if they can really, really introspect well, they can figure out what rules of thumb they're following and what heuristics they've developed. But often they just, they just do it and do it right. So um, yeah, it does, it does become a big advantage and um, it would be, interesting to try to try to quantify that i'm not sure if there's any remotely feasible way to quantify how that works on open ai side but yeah I, I suspect they do have they have a lot more information on 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 prompt engineering and on all the details of training the models and um you know all of these like all the the black magic around what hyperparameters do you use and why and like what what are the intersections between these these various variables um you know what are the like? What is the experience curve for this stuff? Because um, that is, you know, I've I've been struck by how how like you know how much you could extrapolate from GPT two to GPT three and you know get to GPT four. Like it does seem like it's better along a lot of the dimensions that you would expect, and then has these interesting emergent behaviors. So I've wondered where that scaling starts to starts to peter out, or if it doesn't even really matter if you run into scaling bottlenecks if the the time when you run into them is at the superhuman performance level. Like maybe maybe that's just not a big deal if it's you know merely ten percent smarter than the smartest person ever to exist, and also it knows everything. Um, that that could be enough for for most purposes. Right, right. I think that I think people underestimate. Maybe this is kind of going into a more niche topic that I'm um, that I will have some writing on in the future. But I think in many cases people underestimate just the degree of um, both of compl- like like we use this term intelligence, right? I think like like the first layer thing that I'm going to say is kind of. Um, people underestimate just differences in intelligence, but the, the, that's kind of a reduc- that's the reduced version of it. The actual version of it is that like 
basically being able to use like compositional facts, right? Um, like basically being able to kind of almost like an API, being able to plug in facts that you know for certain, combine them, use them to deduce an additional thing is like a very rare thing to happen if you're kind of searching through arguments. And it's, it's even like a very rare thing to happen among like people. Like, I think that people drastically overestimate the kind of basically like rational, you know, like the rationalists, right? How many people in the world, in their, even in their jobs, basically come to things via some sort of like rationalist assessment where they have some kind of certainty and some kind of measure of confidence, um, as opposed to basically like following through things like basically via intuition. And the scale, yeah. like, like, like the scaling from like following through things through via intuition versus like, for example, being a, a like mathematician, right? Or being like a, I don't know, like a, even a machine learning engineer. I mean, machine learning engineer is actually a very good example of this. You have to not just have the intuitions for it, but you have to have these kind of like interaction functions. And you have to have like a very clear model of what you're actually trying to accomplish Right, I think people don't. There's like this, the this this graph like pisses me off to no end, of like people marking like an ant like halfway between like some kind of like um so, some kind of like bacteria, the intelligence of like a bacteria and a human. It's like this, this is just a fundamental misunderstanding of how hard it is to be like correct about things. Being correct about things is very hard. Being intuitively kind of like vaguely pointing in a direction is much easier. And when you get to basically trying to engineer or trying to determine like basically scientific discoveries, I think that people just like completely misunderstand the scale of like what needs to be done in order to achieve that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I'm always reluctant to to use the term. In, I mean, I do it all the time. But I'm reluctant to use the term intelligence or, you know, talk about the, the LLM being smart or whatever, because it is just predicting the next token. But I do think a lot of human cognition, a lot of human conversations are fundamentally pretty close to just next token prediction. And then right, you agree, can bounce back and forth between, yeah, like the, the system one of just let's, um, you know, let's keep filling in the blanks using these heuristics. And then the system two of no, let's actually, um, let's actually think about things we necessarily, we know are necessarily true. Let's do a little math. Let's do some proofs here um, that it's harder to switch into that mode. And um, I think it's it's also it's interesting and promising to see um, LLM based tools that are able to to switch to those different contexts and actually get some get some useful outputs that are also bounded by reality. But um, yeah, it's, it's sort of you know interacting with LLMs does um, does teach you interesting things about how hard it is to model intelligence versus modeling just a sufficiently powerful statistical model that that does not know anything has no internal experience right yeah yeah i i think this is this is great like a lot of this is basically um i i forgot i forgot who said this someone on twitter says said this i'm gonna try to find and link in the description but um that that we anthropomorphize humans too much that we kind of have this idea of yes. like almost like yeah yeah like um was it Descartes you know um th there's this idea that like a lot of you know stereotypically human practice you know stuff that we do every day 
is sort of kind of like conscious and rational and agentic. And that's just not true. Like that's just not what's happening. It's not what's happening like neurologically. It's it's not what's what's happening kind of in practice. There's there's no indication that it's what's happening. The only argument for this is kind of like argument by vibes, right? No one actually who studies this actually thinks that that's the case. And that's the kind of like optimistic case for AI, at least when it comes to like economics, right? The the, the idea is like you know even even if you don't have kind of super human intelligence scaling even just like being able to hit the middle of the bell curve with just enormous you know scaling and enormous speed and just being very and very cost efficient obviously um is just a huge improvement over a lot of human work even even some human work that's being done by say someone who would be um paid a lot of money yes that always worries me but it is true uh that yeah anyway yeah just just replacing a lot of the basic stuff um is is pretty valuable and um and yeah the definition of basic is is partly a question of how much training data we have and so we have we actually we have a lot of training data that is just at the frontier of human confusion like training training on stack overflow answers means looking at all the cases where it is slightly too complicated for someone to just read read the textbook and read the documentation and immediately get the answer but also not so complicated that there's um that they they don't even get to that point of confusion and start asking so like it's it is training on a lot of the it has i think the best data on things that humans like the average person finds slightly challenging which does mean that it's uh in those exact domains it should slightly outperform the average person because it's trained on the questions and trained on the answers and then there there may be a set of questions where there's just um, there's a sparsity problem, like we just don't have enough data on a certain set of questions or a, a, a certain domain. And then there's a sparsity problem in the other direction of um, for the obvious stuff, we have scarcity of training data. And I think one of the one of the fascinating examples here is when you ask Chat GPT to explain um, simple math and walk through it, it sometimes gives these wildly wrong answers, but the answers sound like cases where someone is presenting a paradoxical sounding problem where it looks really simple and it's actually quite complicated because the the number of people who are going to math.stackexchange.com and saying, <laughs> hey, like, how do I add three and seven together? There's just not very many of them. Right. Whereas um, when you like the questions that look like they're only slightly more complicated than that, but you actually need to know a lot of number theory to get the answers. Those, those are where the training, um, where you have a lot more data in the training. Oh, I like see. There's, um, yeah, yeah. There was this wonderful math prank where someone was doing um, fruit math because there was like this trend on Facebook of posting pictures of simple algebra problems where the variables were all pictures of fruit. And Someone did this insane fruit math thing. I will have to find the answer, but it um, it was, was actually it, uh, it, turned into, it was not. Um, it was a Diophantine equation, and let me see. Yeah, all right. Um, I will give you. Maybe, maybe I'll be able to find this. Um, yeah, so it, it was a very, very complicated um, answer. I, somewhere I will find the actual thread on this. All right, I will have to 
Right. I think the audience oh, audience gets it that you you can construct very difficult problems with very simple setups. One good example yeah. might be like Fermat's Last Theorem, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, was it that? Was it Fermat's Last Theorem? It, it was. It was not. Um, it okay. was okay. Like the exact problem is x over y plus z plus y over x plus z plus z over x plus y equals four, and you need an integer answer. And if I recall, it's like a 50-digit and Yeah. Okay, I found it. Um, <laughs> I'll drop it into the chat for you. Yeah, there's a good Quora thread walking through what fundamentals you would need to even start to answer this. But oh, yeah, right, stuff like okay. that is going to be overrepresented in the training set. So... You, um, yeah, so we have like section four of the answer algebraic properties of elliptic curve, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, because, because we just we have limited training data for the really easy problems, um, because no one asks, and then really limited training data for the really hard problems, it is an LLM that's just trained on the stuff you can scrape online is necessarily going to perform at slightly above the level of the average person who runs into a problem that is hard enough that they ask Stack Overflow or post it on Quora or Reddit or something. And that's a that's a really interesting situation to be in where it's actually like it is actually calibrated to be slightly better than the median white collar worker. Um, Certainly from the from the broad macroeconomic perspective, um, if there's a slightly better version of a white collar worker and they're significantly cheaper. That that certainly has its impacts. But um, going back to the the Microsoft point, um, distribution matters a whole lot, and it takes a very long time for a product to go from clearly superior to the alternatives to actually integrated into the process at every every organization that could possibly use it. I think like if you if you go back and look at the history of factory electrification, it took a really really long time after it was obvious that this was the way to go, and because it turned out you had to actually redesign the entire factory. So if you look at a pre-electricity factory, it's generally a tall building probably located next to a river or something. So it has a natural source of power and everything in the building is attached through ropes and pulleys to that central power source. So the optimal shape is actually a cylinder, but you typically get like a big blocky square. And the the optimal shape for a factory where everything is powered by electricity is just a big two-dimensional sprawl somewhere where land is cheap. And um, the optimal growth path for those factories goes from, you know, every factory is this N of one thing. And if you build a new one, you need to, you treat it as practically its own company and raise money for it and things like that. And then once it's profitable, it pays out most of the profits to investors. Like once you can expand continuously rather than through these discrete increments, it totally changes how companies are managed. Um, you could actually see this if um, looking at dividend payouts in the early 20th century, that um, it used to be that most companies paid out the vast majority of their earnings as dividends because um, it didn't really make sense to retain capital because you really couldn't retain enough capital to build your next N of one factory in any reasonable right. time frame, you just raise more money to build the factory. But once once factories are expanding by increments and once you can um, 
replace like slightly extend um, the assembly line or add a parallel assembly line or replace one machine with a faster machine without having to readjust everything because you have a finite amount of power, then that more organic kind of expansion actually makes sense. And so retaining more earnings starts to make sense. So it actually, it creates the possibility of a company that continuously grows instead of a company that just raises money for one thing, does that thing and just continues to exist until it goes bankrupt. Right. I think like one interesting debate is kind of like the macro economics of kind of like semi-proficient office work capable um, AI, right? The, the the big question is like, okay, we have this AI that automates, say, a lot of like email tasks, right? Scheduling basically makes, you know, being a white collar worker more efficient. Does that kind of reallocate labor towards some other area does it just i I think like i'm I'm very skeptical of the idea that it just kind of like leaves those people unemployed but that's another path and then like a third path is they make they make it more efficient and the people kind of double down into those industries right so like the email workers they just they they just do like even more you know email work um so which one of those paths do you think is more realistic or some kind of fourth one um i think the short-term path is that there's suddenly a much larger premium on getting good training data. And um, so, you know, in one sense, like every office worker turns out to have been training their replacement. It's just the replacement as an AI and not, you know, another cheaper employee. Um, so, but once, once you want to do that systematically, you actually want to look for gaps in the training data and have a human being start training. So that could actually lead to higher higher demand for white collar work, but the work is switching from, from OPEX to CAPEX. So it's switching from a thing that you do continuously and a person can get slightly more efficient at the process, but they're not going to get massively better to a setup where they are, they're spending X amount of hours figuring out how, like writing sample answers to a particular email from a customer or, you know, whatever, whatever the issue is. Um, and then once they've done that to the point that, um, that it's easy to automatically produce that, that category of response, then a human being never really has to do that. Um, I think the set of jobs where it gets really interesting is jobs where there is an easy to automate component and a hard to automate component. So if you think about a sales job where some of it is having lots of initial conversations and trying to figure out if someone is worth talking to more, and then once there's a once you've found a good prospect, there's a lot more of an in-depth discussion with them. Um, if you can automate the the part that is more commoditized and that is just um, where there's not that much value to add, then people will spend more of their time on the high value task. So I think it will it will probably lead to higher um, higher variance within basically every every symbol manipulation job out there. Um, will temporarily lead to higher demand for some of those jobs, and then eventually we do have to find something else for people to do. I don't think I don't think everyone is just going to end up working as like a butler for an ML engineer who's making twenty million dollars <laughs> a year because they got a bad offer or something. Um, I I don't think it'll go quite that way. Um, you probably like a lot of service jobs will be more defensible, and if AI is creating wealth, then it, like on the margin, the richer a country gets, the more money, the more marginal dollars get spent on those service jobs. But it may turn out that some of those service jobs are are more automatable. Um, there's also and, and then you get into the political question of can we solve this with UBI? And I think that is implicitly that seems to be the open AI thesis in the sense that 
they do say they want like their their capital structure basically says we want to make sure everyone makes a ton of money doing this but if it works out the majority of the gains will actually be distributed to you know just redistributed for the good of humanity and in their case it's redistributed to their foundation but you could imagine a more widespread distribution so if we go back to the hypothetical of everyone who can actually add value by writing code is making far more money than they could before but there are fewer people who can actually do that um you know those people will still have very nice lives if their marginal tax rate is 80 or 90 percent and that does that does mean that there's um there's more money to go around for the rest of us and then um ai is probably in the event that it does take over a lot of white collar jobs it's probably quite deflationary so um you actually don't necessarily need to tax people all that much you can just do um heavy deficit spending instead and um the people who are making money there there will be limits to how much stuff they can invest in and um they may actually have a significant appetite for treasury bonds although of course <laughs> people who worry about the singularity they don't want to buy a 10 year bond they they you know they they don't see that as an especially meaningful decision so there's there's still some non-linearities in this model that we'd have to take care of Right. And there's a lot of more practical, there's a lot of practical actions by Sam Altman to suggest that this is his view as well, right? He's done um, WorldCoin or he's kind of, um, was he co-founder or like just a major investor in that? I don't remember. Um, um, yeah, I should have brought that up yeah, before. I know, I know early, but, I don't know exactly. Let's see, Sam Altman, WorldCoin. Um, Sam Altman's crypto project, WorldCoin, releases first. Um, consumer product. Yeah, this doesn't really tell. Okay, so TechCrunch says, you know, it's its headline, co-founded by Sam Altman. Um, so yeah, at, at least heavy involvement, um, probably um, co-founded. So yeah, that's that's quite interesting though. Like, it does give you some kind of signal, right? Right. Like what, what's the, what's the signal that we, we can try to take away. And this is almost by definition speculative, but what's the kind of signal we can kind of take away um, from the fact that Sam Altman is someone who kind of thinks about these things, right. Who thinks about, you know, what will we do after AI is everywhere and we're going to, you know, do UBI with some kind of um, iris scanning coin, right. That's what world coin is. Right. Um, yeah, I think, I think he's thinking about the downsides, um, or, you know, thinking about there's like, there's the social stability downside from the economic upside. And that's pretty much inevitable. Um, if you're, if you're imagining sufficient economic upside, you have to imagine that there are a lot of people whose lives will be disrupted, that if those people were generally happy, um, you can't really expect the disruption to, to have positive expected value for them even if their their kids and grandkids will not be able to imagine living in the poverty of previous generations like it's still it's still tough to go through that it's it was tough for people to go through industrialization it was tough for people to go through the rise of agriculture i'm sure uh, like we know that from looking at the the skeletons of hunter gatherers and looking at the, the the scrawnier and more diseased skeletons of early farmers like this stuff is always always disruptive and um i think at this point we just we have more of a historical corpus and we also have we have the social technology to concentrate a lot of the benefits in people who are thinking about the consequences and um the like the 
there's very concentrated upside to being the winner in AI, especially if, um, as I think is likely, the pace of development at companies that are using pre using tools that have not been widely released to accelerate their own um, their own creation of the next round of tools, like that does mean that there are there are winner take all dynamics. At least there are winner take all dynamics if the limit is algorithms and compute. There are fewer winner take all dynamics if the limit is data, or there are um, there are incumbent take all dynamics if the fundamental limit is data. Like if if the limit is data, then Amazon wins in um, in the parts of AI that reference predicting what things people will want to buy conditional on what they've already purchased. Um, Google wins in figuring out intent once people have intent. And then Facebook wins or Meta wins in one um, manipulating intent. And, you know, that's that's what ads do. So I'm using that in the the neutral sense um altering right, right. people's intent and then also meta has this huge corpus of just normal conversations one of my favorite things to look at with meta is their quarterly report on um on abusive content on their platform because one of the problems they were able to solve was uh, not fully solved was uh, but partly solved was bullying and bullying is very hard to detect because people often do it sarcastically and people often say things that if they were meant in earnest, would be cruel bullying, but are actually just people joking around with their friends. That's very hard to detect just by looking at text, but they actually have enough of a corpus and they have enough data on what things people flagged as actually bullying that they've um, they've materially improved their ability to detect that stuff. Um, and this is like, take it's kind of a side note, but um, I, I think this is one reason that Meta um, a year or two ago was advocating stricter regulations on what you can say on social networks was that they are actually probably the only company that can offer a comment section and not worry that it's a net liability in in a world where um say people are people are liable if someone um you know someone buys something buys some furniture on wayfair and leaves a review that's praising isis or whatever like if that becomes a legal liability for them um, Meta can detect that stuff, and other people generally just don't have enough data to, so they can't. Right. But um, to return to return to the the scaling thing, um, in sure. in previous episodes of Massive Wealth Creation, there they haven't been as concentrated as AI has the potential to be. And if the wealth creation in AI is sufficiently concentrated, then the people who actually reap the benefits from it will have enough money and potentially enough political pull to to create policies that help adapt to some of the downsides. Sorry. So if it is more concentrated, then there will be more social pull or, or the other way. They would have more pull. So the way I think about it is like, like cars, cars were hugely disruptive to a lot of things. Um, you know, they, they kind of invented dating and made the supermarket possible and made suburbs possible, all that stuff. But even someone like Henry Ford did not actually have enough money that he could have theoretically done some sort of suburban ennui mitigation fund that actually tries to, um, you know, pay people to move back to the farms and subsidize them living in a closer to ancestrally normal environment. Like he didn't make enough money to do that in part because the margin on cars is not that high, but the margin the margin on API, API calls to open AI could potentially be 
significantly higher and the market cap ascribed to that could also be significantly higher. So you could actually reach a point where, you know, Sam Altman or like OpenAI um, causes trillions of dollars of economic disruption and also is worth trillions of dollars and uses some of that money to mitigate some of that disruption because they would rather have, say, half the upside and not oh, be I see. destroyed okay, I see in some sort mean. of Butlerian jihad. Yeah. Right, right. So so the economic power becomes to the extent where they can do societal societal level um, changes, not the kind of government influence. Um, okay, I understand where, where, where um, or like what this argument is now. Um, yeah, I think Which it's... the argument is, it's very dependent on the goodwill and the perceptiveness of the people who win. So you want there to be a really tight correlation between, you know, Sam knows how to start a good AI company. He also knows what is best for us in the event of AI disruptions, and he also wants to do what is best. And, you know, you hope that all of those correlate really well in a world where, um, with a person who, like the entity that solves this actually has has enough wealth to be the, the main party that's trying to mitigate some of the downsides. Um, you can also imagine much, much darker futures. Right. I don't know. I think that people kind of, like, like there is this dual thing of like, okay, and throughout, throughout these historical phase changes, yeah, people are kind of intermediate uh, from an intermediate state. Like, like let's put the kind of, you know, um, existential risk, arguments aside i think those are just kind of factually wrong um i already talked about one of the articles that um i think might be out by the time this is out at least part one about hardware constraints on acceleration um but leaving that aside with regards to the social problems i think that most cases you would look back in the past like like for example you talked about poor farmers becoming worse in the intermediate period but I think, you know, most farmers or pretty much all Western farmers nowadays much better off than they were, you know, like 50, 100 years ago. Um, same is true for almost everyone in at least developed Western countries. Right. And you might say, OK, that's that's in some degree because of labor outsourcing. Sure. But like, I think in the long like, I'm not sure the kind of like base rate prediction here is going to be that far off. Right. And, and I'm kind of surprised. I'm actually kind of surprised that you uh, think that that might be the case. Do you want to elaborate on why? So I think you have, I think there are a couple of variables. Like I, I do agree that everyone, basically everyone is better off from industrialization. Everyone is better off from agriculture. It is that typically that first generation that is not, not necessarily better off. They may in some cases be economically better off and then socially worse off. And, um, you know, I guess there's you know, there's a libertarian view that who are you to say that um, this person should accept a lower lower material standard of living in order to stay with their community? Um, you just you know you should let them let them weigh those options and decide which one they want. But um, I think if you look at like wages in the early industrial in the during the industrial revolution, um, they didn't they didn't go up all that much. Um, the, some things got cheap, like clothing got significantly cheaper, but um, 
people were also they were moving to cities where they did typically have a shorter expected lifetime lifespan um there was a higher disease burden and you know eventually when you concentrate a bunch of people in cities and send some of them to universities they they discover things like we should wash our hands and then we won't all get sick so much so um some of it does get mitigated over time and um and it in that case it was probably just a necessary ingredient like there there wasn't really a way to solve some of the downsides of urbanization without having urbanization in the first place but um if you if you think about things like the the u.s transition away from manufacturing and towards the services economy um you know i'm i'm part of the services economy it's certainly fine for me but there there was that whole generation where they they did have the social expectation of you're going to get a job at a factory and 40 years later you will retire with a nice pension and you really don't have to think about the risk in the meantime. And if you get through half of that process and you've done your, your part of the bargain and then um, your factory does get shut down and then a cheaper one opens up in a different market, like you do, you do feel ripped off and you do feel like there was a social contract and that contract got voided because it was inconvenient to your counterparty. And you you know, maybe maybe you would have also avoided the contract if it were inconvenient to you, but um, it does it does cause some level of loss of trust, and it also causes some level of economic hardship among the people who are who are losing their jobs, and that can be that can be pretty destabilizing. Um, it can be very, especially if it hap- if it coincides with other people getting really rich. Um, and especially in the current media environment, like you can, if you want, spend all of your time um, as an unemployed person reading things that outrage you about how much money people are making from your situation. Um, it's typically not not as direct as it looks if you're reading, you know, the anti-work subreddit or uh, DSA Twitter or whatever. But um, you can certainly get that impression. So I think that that does that does lead to some risk of unrest, and that it's useful to think about how that risk can be mitigated. Right. So um, this is actually from Walgo. I'm not sure if he's done an updated version of this for 2022, but Richard Nania had a report for 2020, for the 2020 election that really like both economic change and kind of baseline economic well-being or economic factors didn't really predict voting patterns at all. Um, yeah. When it comes to just like general, instability i don't know like people have these takes right like jonathan Haidt has these takes that like ai will kind of like destabilize democracy and the idea is you know like people are just going to vote based on loyalty and people are going to vote based on emotion and what makes them sound nice or or what sounds nice to them sorry and to me like this is just how democracy has always worked right yeah and i say this like, is something, i agree with yeah. that i so right. i think one thing one thing that llms in particular do is they actually commoditize good arguments and i think that does right. make yeah. charisma relatively more valuable so in that sense he's right oh interesting um, yeah right. and then i do you think it makes okay. charisma more valuable yeah because anyone anyone will be able to produce a a plausible argument that you know we need way more immigration, we need way less immigration, and they'll be able to customize that argument based on what you personally would find appealing. So um, you're right. no longer limited by someone making the exact argument, the exact factual argument that would be most appealing to you. Like you can go in chat GPT and do that. I mean, I guess 
except for some categories of argument that chat GPT is, is not friendly with right now. But, um, you know, someone, someone running um, Llama or whatever will be able to do that. And um, presumably the, the number of discrete political ads run in the next election will be like an order of magnitude or, you know, many orders of magnitude higher than it was before, because they'll be, it'll be so cheap to create these targeted ads. But the thing that is harder to commoditize is the emotional appeal. Like people are not going to watch a deep fake video of Bernie Sanders addressing them one-on-one and talking to them. It's just less interesting, but what they, when, when a lot of the digital stuff gets commoditized because it gets so cheap, the in-person stuff gets more, more valuable. So I think that in 2024, the, the candidates who can put on a really fun rally and who have really strong in-person charisma will actually do relatively better than they would have done historically because the other stuff, the actual policy stuff, is going to be—it's going to be harder to get an advantage there. I think the other thing to talk about in democracy is there's a there's a really fun paper that um, paper and uh, GitHub repo on using GPT three to write letters to your congressperson advocating pol- particular political. Oh yes, yes, I love this. Yes, and the way I think about that is like that is you know it's part of the the de- democratic process as it's experienced that. If you have, if you and your friends have strong views on something, you can all get together. You can start writing letters. You can encourage your other friends to write letters. And then, for views that are more diffuse, it's just less likely that anyone will do that. But now the cost of doing that is so much lower that what we're really doing is actually democratizing democracy. We're giving more people access to the, to um, being able to advocate for issues where pre- previously you needed either a budget or you needed this to be an issue that was really appealing to people with lots of free time. So. Um, I think that actually becomes really good for the YIMBY movement because NIMBYs typically have more free time. They can actually go to the meetings and they can write the letters and things and they can participate in the process because a lot of them are um, retired and you know living off the income from their property. So of course they have a strong economic interest in keeping that property scarce. Um, but now the YIMBYs can, they can't match them you know person for person on showing up at the meetings and arguing, but they can match them in terms of writing the letters, rebutting the letters, writing the reports, stuff like that. So um, should be it should be good for political movements that have very dispersed interests and less concentrated interests because they can now they they now have something closer to lobbying parody. Right, right, right. This this is I've written almost exactly the same thing. Um, yeah, a lot of people when they're complaining about, you know, our democracy are actually complaining about the loss of their oligarchy. Um, yeah, like a lot of this participatory, um, you know, quote unquote democracy is basically a selection effect for people who have little productive things to do or just have, you know, just just like an extremely strong kind of, um, in like classic public choice theory terms, right, an extremely strong concentrated interest. And both of those things, in in my view, and I can have, you know, I'm sure you know a lot of the empirics around public choice theory as well, are kind of like net negative for society. Um, so, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I just look at this and I think this is just absolutely wonderful, this area of development where people are kind of, where anyone can send um, can can send a generated letter and attach their name to it. This is just this is just beautiful, um, right? Yeah. So so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna scale back the um, or not scale back, but um, return travel back in time um, a few questions and look at machine learning uh, funding again. What do you 
like the phenomenon of this is something I've just been like kind of I haven't really made a lot of confident predictions about this, um, but something I've just been like consistently wrong on is how much money machine learning startups keep getting. Like they just keep getting VC funding. And I'm just surprised, like, like, you know, pre, it was pre, it was like during the crypto crash, I'm like, okay, okay, time for an ML winter. Um, I didn't say this publicly, just with my friends, especially ones who are working in machine learning. And then, you know, like Silicon Valley bank thing happened. I'm like, okay, okay, it's time for the, it's time for the fucking funding winter already. And then, and then this kind of keeps happening and they just keep getting more money. And, um, you know, I've been humbled. I've been, um, I've been proven wrong by reality, but I still don't quite know why. So I'm not sure if you can give me an explanation on this. Um, it's tricky, um, and I have I have invested in in such companies, so I'm I'm part of the problem. Um, <laughs> sorry about that, but no, um, no. I, so so one of the things that is it and this is sadly this is not like a a cool change in technology. It's a fairly boring change in regulation. Is that in a more in a more privacy centric regulatory environment, and um, you can actually include Google and Apple as de facto regulators because they can they can affect um, cross app tracking. In that environment, first party data matters a lot more. The companies that have it and have a lot of it can can target ads effectively, and um, but they it's harder to share that data. So you actually have a lot more companies that are building up a building up some kind of ML capacity in-house. And one way to think about it is if you think about like typically um, higher profit margins are good. And a retailer that earns a 10% profit margin is way better than a retailer that earns a 2% profit margin. But if you flip that around and say that um, like a grocery store might earn a 2% margin. So for every dollar of income that grocery store earns, it has $50 of first party purchase data from its customers. And if it can use that to target ads to those customers, and those ads have much higher margins than selling avocados, then it can actually be substantially more profitable. So that is that is okay. one of the sources of demand. Is like a lot of companies realizing that they have this data, um, they used to be able to sort of outsource some of the data gathering to data aggregators and to basically the entire ad tech stack. Like a lot of the ad tech stack was just, we're going to find one more source of data, plug it into this, triangulate demand across one more, you know, one more dimension and then have slightly better ad targeting. It's harder to do that now, but um, that means that if you have a set of customers and they are buying your products through apps and you have all of their transaction data going back to when they first started buying from you, and you have the data of other customers, you can actually start targeting those customers with ads and the the suppliers, like the people who are selling the stuff you put on your shelves, they are the ones paying for those ads. So, um, you know, if you, if you are a grocery store and you see that one of your customers for the very first time started buying prenatal vitamins, then the bidding war is on and Procter right. & Gamble and Kimberly Clark are both going to be desperate to sell this new parent or this future new parent, the first pack of diapers, because they know that's a frequently recurring purchase. And there are a lot of ancillary purchases that come after that. Um, Being able to auction that off is really valuable. And so it does actually create demand for an in-house ML stack that is actually sort of replacing the functions of the external ad tech stack. And I think the other force that actually made this viable was COVID, because COVID caused a lot more people to buy online and do curbside pickup. And then 
that actually changed shopper behavior. So people do some of their shopping online, may or may not pick it up in store, or may like pick some stuff up in store, still browse other things. It it meant that a lot more shopping is mediated through the app. Now, one of the benefits of that is that you as the store get to see not just what did someone buy, but what did they consider and then reject. So you basically have data mm. on everything that went into the cart and out of the cart, everything that people's eyes lingered on because scroll speed is a proxy for, for your eye focus. Um, you can see that it, with Facebook and their, their ad targeting that if you, if you even slow down to read the ad, then they can treat that as an expression of some level of interest and you will probably see the same ad or similar ads again in the future. Um, so it's just, it's made a lot more consumer intent that hasn't actually turned into purchases um, legible. And it also has made the valuable of the intent that has turned into purchases that much more legible or that much more valuable too. So I think that's, that is part of what's going on. And then the other thing is just um, the natural tendency for investors to look at a big success in one category and then try to either do that but for something else. So, you know, Rover and Wag, it's Uber for dog walking, and we know how great Uber was, so we know these are going to be great too. Um, <laughs> or it is like trying to, trying to figure out, is there, is there a better way to build this product? Because the first version was good, but had some level of path dependence, and the perfect version probably doesn't look like the path-dependent first version. Right. I think that very... Wait, actually, I, I want to jump on something you said previously there, um, because it is just like the most public choice theory uh, thing ever um, of, OK, we're going to do privacy regulation, guys. We did the privacy regulation. Um, the companies are still free to absolutely do everything to collect your data and extrapolate it. They just can't sell the data to startups now. <laughs> um, that is just the most it, it, it's just, you know. Sometimes, sometimes, like a lot of terrible things happen, but they're just such clear demonstrations. Like, like this just goes in a public choice theory textbook, right? It's just yeah, it's, it's like, just like perfect prediction of reality. We we've like totally revolutionized who is violating your privacy in order to target you with ads. It's uh, it's an amazing achievement. Um, right. Yeah. Right. No, it, I, it's. I mean, and that is that is somewhat a sketch. And there there are all kinds of companies that are finding. They're finding these senses in which they do, in fact, have first-party data. So um, there, there are these companies like Taboola and Outbrain, the, the content recommendation companies, where some of what they do is you're reading a news article on OpenAI, and it's going to recommend a related article on Anthropic or whatever. Um, but the other thing they do is they also recommend contextual ads. And they apparently, apparently all of this counts as first-party data, even though part of what they're recommending is ads. So they actually have first Sorry, data I, I, across I don't all get the customers. distinction here. What is what what is something that counterintuitively counts as first party data? So they're they're like they're displaying ads on third party publisher like third party publisher sites. But because the ads oh, take I the see. form of content recommendations, it is actually like a first party ish product. So um and I'm I'm not sure how far that like how much Apple and Google will actually countenance that distinction. But um, there, there are definitely cases where you can make something first party enough to count and, um, and, you know, still, still do things sort of the old way with more, a little more inconvenience and just a little less of the ability to use external data sets and triangulate across them. Right. Yeah. So, so like, is this, Maybe we just go back to the kind of um, 
yeah is it the is it malice or is it um or is it just kind of like signaling and social factors right what was the kind of intent behind this legislation and we might not know as well so feel free to tell me that if you don't know or just aren't very very confident but was the intent behind this like it like the public choice theory purpose or was it just you know a mess that happened to land on this land on this outcome my my mental model is that usually these things start out with good intentions but there are a lot of detailed decisions you have to make to actually implement them and that the implementation is when you you the legislator do need to rely on lobbyists and the lobbyists are definitely going to give you a version of the truth that does correspond to reality but also corresponds to the version of reality that is best for their purposes and then um the other piece of privacy is um apple and google getting more restrictive and i think in that case it is it is more straightforwardly that they um they see this as good PR and they also know that it's not going to affect them. Like Apple, Apple still tracks you across apps. Like they're still doing exactly what they ban other apps from doing. And um, they, they're just very, um, very vague about exactly, exactly how they do it, but um, they're still doing that. And then they're, they're also staffing up on the advertising side of their business. So um, it's a, yeah, again, it doesn't, it doesn't entirely change what happens. It changes who does it. And in some ways, in some ways it's good. So um, one of the senses of which it's good is that it does mean that you have less data just being freely auctioned off by whomever to whomever. Um, you have a lot more of it concentrated in companies that at least view, they at least see that there's reputational legal risk to doing anything too egregious with the data. Um, they may also actually have some level of ideological commitment like they don't want they don't want lots of data brokers out there sharing everything about everyone with anyone who wants to pay because they they believe they would hold themselves to higher standards and you know they they can they can still do a fair amount of ad targeting um also keep people's personally identifiable information safe and make you know more money for them but not as much money as the entire ad tech ecosystem would have made under a previous system right yeah, so so ret- returning to the question of machine learning startup funding, um, yeah, there, there seem to be you know like it's it's this well known phenomenon of like boom bust cycles. Investors become um, more and more ambitious, and then there's a crash, but they become more and more pessimistic, and then it repeats. Um, it seems like that hasn't really happened, or maybe the shift is that they're now now bearish on crypto, and that all that money is going into machine learning, but. Yeah, the kind of like San Francisco tech scene, you know, like people say it's a recession. It does not feel like a recession, right? Certainly does not seem like a recession from uh, who is getting money, who is getting VC funding. Um, Is is this a kind of change in how the boom bust cycle works? Or is this just, you know, is is this just this kind of like intra-sector shift? Is this just kind of how things have always been? It is, I think it's closer to how things have always been. Um, a lot of what causes booms is that there is there is initially some exogenous thing that makes the sector a good one to invest in. And as people figure that out, asset prices start to get closer to what their fair value should be. But there are also feedback loops, and those feedback loops do end up making the bubble a little more exaggerated and then making the bust more exaggerated too. So um, I think in 
like Paul Graham actually has a really good essay um, from a long time ago now about this and how it worked with um, with the dot com era, where basically companies would raise money and they would say dot com like internet companies are real businesses. Just look at Yahoo; they're actually profitable. They're growing insanely fast. And then when they raised the money, they needed to get an audience and so they bought banner ads on yahoo so the next quarter yahoo's making even more money and the argument is even stronger but that meant that yahoo's fundamentals were actually dependent on more money flowing into the into other dot coms um you could see something similar in real estate where people um in the mid 2000s people would not default on mortgages when they lost their jobs as long as the house price had gone up they would just refinance and then pay their bills from the larger mortgage borrowings they'd done um so as long as housing prices were going up mortgage defaults were low which meant that you could make a lot of money by um by making subprime loans but as soon as that flow of loans slowed down even slightly housing prices stopped going up and so people started defaulting again so you always have feedback loops. When you have an extreme bubble, you always have feedback loops. And those loops tend to exaggerate things on the way up. And then because a lot of the immediate revenue goes away when the bubble pops, um, it exaggerates things on the way down. I don't know that there is a strong feedback loop in in AI right now, unless it is that you have someone like OpenAI, where they they create a product that is mostly consumed. I think like the, the modal consumption mode is probably still API and then you have a lot of people messing around with chat GPT. But um if like if OpenAI is able to demonstrate that it's it's a cool company, credible investors want to invest in it because we don't really have a lot of data on their their fundamentals, um, that does mean that it's easier to fundraise for companies that are building off of those models and building a um a domain specific implementation or like just a domain specific wrapper for them, whether it's something like a writing assistant or, um, you know, the copywriting tool, stuff like that. Um, and then those companies would naturally do a lot of API calls. So they make OpenAI look even better. I don't know that that is the main thing happening right now because there is actually a meaningful technological change and um, that distribution is like, it's worth doing and worth getting right. But that that could potentially be one one thing to keep an eye out for is like how much how much of the fundamentals will go away if funding slows down right i think like yeah i think that like something that's very interesting here is that is this like sam altman's i'm not sure if this is like convenience or um or you know some kind of planning but it is just very it's very convenient for him that he can kind of redirect he he can kind of like reorient the kind of spectrum of discussion about open ai uh away from like is open ai overrated or underrated towards like will open ai destroy the world or is, will it just be extremely profitable um that's a very nice spectrum i think for um for open ai to be kind of um to be kind of having discussion around um yeah it, it does seem to I, be the case that like even though there to, to me like there are signs of a bubble right like maybe maybe from the inside it always seems like a bubble i'm not too i'm not as familiar about the kind of historical context of this and how to really see but but like from the, the inside view is that it's like this is definitely a bubble <laughs> um and um i'm not sure if that's kind of 
a misinterpretation if that's kind of how it always feels especially in the bay area or if that's just kind of or or if that is actually specific to this time and place it is incredibly hard to interrogate feelings about is this a bubble am i participating in a bubble you know am i to the extent that i am participating am i the the smart and cynical person who is getting the money while the money is good and I know I'm going to be the one to sell or am I actually the last person to buy in and the person who like the person on the other side of my transaction is that smart cynical person like that's always right. always hard to tell it always feels at some level too early and at some level too late um, Mark Andreessen actually talked about this in one interview years ago where he said that when he came to the Bay Area in 1994 there was a tech recession and he thought he'd missed it. Like he thought that the, the um, Bay area tech scene was this thing that happened from the seventies through the early nineties. And then <laughs> Japan destroyed it or high oil prices destroyed it or something. Um, yeah. It turned out, turned out not to be true, but it's uh, yeah, it's hard to time that stuff. Um, and typically the, the annoying, but probably prudent advice is, if you're building something that's genuinely valuable, then um, you should be a little bit cognizant of where you think you are in the cycle to determine whether you want to raise a lot of money or delay. But you shouldn't time big decisions around it because um, it's it's unlikely for there to be a cycle that is so severe that it turns an idea from a good one to a bad one. There could be cases where the cycle, like the bo- the the upswing in the cycle, is so strong that. The second best company, you know, the second best product raises ten times the money of the best product and gets to dominant market share before the before the actual best product can, and um, that's kind of that's an inevitable risk. And so everyone sort of has to play along with with the the bubble and the bubbly narratives if they want to if they want to stay on track, unless unless they they have some strong view on their unit economics and on how long their competitors can last and on whether or not network effects from someone else getting to scale first can be surmounted. Um, like you, you do have to have a view on that. You know, it's, uh, it's like the, the London thing, like if, whether or not you care about bubbles, bubbles care about you. <laughs> yes. Um, so interesting kind of meta question, right? Like there, there's a certain archetype of, I think people like me, you know, either software engineers or like, DC people, like upper upper middle class, um, but not economists. Sorry, not economists, not traders. We kind of learn about these things and make somewhat related judgments with regards to careers. And at least from my understanding, like th- these kind of like basic economic ideas, um, either like a true or maybe like a distorted or very distorted version of them, do proliferate a lot more nowadays. Um, do you think that has any effect? on kind of the existence of bubbles and of uh of kind of boom bust cycles i i actually don't um my so my main case study for this is actually that my wife used to she was an adjunct who taught adult learners at a a university about um logical fallacies and what she critical i think it was a course on critical thinking and what she discovered was that at the end of the course people had learned the specific terminology for mistakes other people were making but had not actually improved their critical thinking at all 
Like they just they just <laughs> yeah. knew things like, oh, that's a false equivalence or whatever. Like they they learned vocabulary, but it's it is very hard to actually um, actually make the mental model part of your own repertoire. Like plenty of people who know all about bubbles and you know are aware of financial cycles still get involved at the wrong time. Um, you know, Soros, George Soros wrote his he he wrote you know a masterpiece of an investment memo outlining the the interplay between market sentiment and fundamentals and how they feed in each other and then they reverse and um he wrote that memo in the 70s and made a ton of money because things played out exactly how he thought they would and the asset class he was paying attention to and then he i think bought a ton like he shorted dot coms in the late nine like in 1999 and then bought a ton of them in early 2000 and both of those were the worst possible timing. Like he bought, he shorted right (laughs) Right, before the last big run up bought right before the actual collapse. Um, It's just, it's really hard. Um, Market timing is fundamentally hard because the market is um, as Eliezer pointed out, it is a prediction of a prediction. So it's that much harder to predict. Um, And and yeah, even if you even if you know a lot of the mechanics of bubbles, it's the timing can be really hard to figure out. I think the best the best place that you can get to is there are cases where you can just you can find um, find in market prices some representation of the logical inconsistency behind the bubble, and this is basically what a lot of the the best short sellers did in the housing bubble is they realized that. One of the things the market was understating was the correlation of defaults for mortgages within a given collateralized debt obligation structure. And so there's like a really esoteric argument for why that would be the case. But the fundamental thing to to note about this was that um, the default rate would either be higher, much higher than people expected, or actually much lower than people expected. And so the the best trade from a risk-adjusted basis was not the famous one from the big short. It wasn't just, we are going to bet against the most credit-worthy slices of mortgage-backed securities, um, of subprime-backed securities. It was actually, we are going to bet on the least credit-worthy slice and simultaneously bet against the most credit-worthy slice because we think that those extreme outcomes are actually relatively more likely than the market thinks. And it's the intermediate outcome that the entire statistical models are based on that can't be true because of the selection process that creates these securities in the first place. Um, and that was that was something that people who were active in the market all the time took a very long time to actually figure out and implement. And in other markets, the market is just not quite generous enough to give everyone the opportunity to do that. So um, sometimes you just have to say that it's, it's looking a little crazy out there and uh, you've got to keep your guard up. But um, there's there's not that much to do differently other than, you know, if there's an opportunity to raise money and you're pretty confident that the market is, is overestimating the, the probability of every company doing well, like, yeah, you, you pretty much have to raise money because someone, there's always the risk that someone dumber than you with a worse product than you is going to raise more money and crush you. And um, it's, it's unjust. You can't let it happen. So you said on the podcast, uh, there are times when I spend a lot of time researching and no one really paid attention to it, to, to your article that you're researching for. Um, what is your most underrated article? Um, I would say the most underrated one is, well, it's tricky to say, I think it's underrated in the aggregate, but um, fairly rated by a subset of readers. Um, so I wrote this piece on Medium years ago 
about the ideas of Eric Vogelin and how how his views on um, the the most important political ideologies of the 20th century compare to economic bubbles. So his view is that um, that communism and fascism and liberal democracy are all instances of the Gnostic heresy, and they're all attempts to create some kind of paradise on earth, but that's flawed because you can't, you know, mortal flawed human beings can't create um, earthly paradise. And um, I noticed that with a lot of financial bubbles, there is this narrative of creating some form of earthly perfection. So I, um, I took, I basically scheduled a day where I was going to do nothing except read Vogelin and write and spent most of that day writing and produced this long tour of 20th century bubbles and their, their promises and what they ultimately delivered. And um, not a ton of people read it, but it, among the people who read it, um, it has gotten a fairly high response rate in terms of people finding it, emailing me, saying they liked it and me ending up, you know, hanging out with them. So that's, in that sense, it has been, um, it's been well rated that it was kind of a niche topic, but the people who liked it really, really liked it. Right. So yeah, that's maybe an interesting part, a way, a way to start us off. So like, how does, how do the bubbles relate to Gnosticism? Expand more on that. Yeah. So what a lot of like bubbles, they have to start with some kind of view of how the world is changing. Um, often it's technological, but in many cases there's a social element to it also. And a lot of times that social element is basically the thesis that we have existing institutions. They are in some way dysfunctional and um, they need to be replaced by new ones. And, you know, that's always, always somewhat true, but there's also always this information asymmetry where until you're in charge, you don't know how difficult it is to be in charge. And until you've had to make hard decisions with annoying trade-offs, you don't really know what those trade-offs are like and what the alternative might have been. So um, bubbles, like the the challenger companies in a bubbly environment often just tend to underestimate the complexity of whatever problem they're trying to tackle. You know, there was, there was a lot of this hype in the 90s about how we just wouldn't need middlemen. Like we'd all be able to go direct to whatever company we wanted to work with and buy whatever goods and services we wanted. Um, this was also part of the the Web2 idea that you know you don't have to you don't have to be beholden to the editors at the New York Times you could just go on Reddit and get your own customized newspaper and then it turns out like the the biggest companies that the internet era has produced are mostly intermediaries like they are middlemen um and they're like middlemen among middlemen so not only do you have Google where it's intermediating between the searcher and then the company that's advertising um you know advertising to target those keywords but then there are companies like Expedia and Booking where they are running ads on Google search and other media and then they themselves are intermediaries to the hotels so it actually turned out to be this golden age for intermediation instead of a golden age for disintermediation and one of the reasons for that was that these these intermediaries actually perform a valuable service they figure out which which products are worth presenting and to whom, and um, that there is some necessary separation between doing the the implementation, like running the hotel versus doing the marketing and finding 
okay, which person wants to go to Paris in a month and how long are they staying and what what part of town do they want to be in and what kind of hotel do they want? Um, those turn out to be sufficiently different tasks that it is worthwhile to have some separation. But when you're, when you're totally buying into the hype, um, you'll sometimes believe that that is just like a flaw. It's an economic inefficiency and that when it goes away, everyone is better off. And I think for, for Web2, you know, there was there was this whole narrative around Web two and social media and things where we will just get the news directly, and there was there was a little of that. Like um, there was that um, the plane landing in the Hudson in two thousand nine, where Twitter had the photos before um, before the AP did, before the New York Times did. Like that was that was pretty amazing. But it turns out that a lot of the most popular content on social networks is actually content that is professionally produced and that over time they end up with more of their page views being from media companies, whether it's legacy media companies that adapted or new media companies that were just built on harvesting that traffic. So um, it looked like we would just get this, this direct kind of participatory media environment. And we just ended up, it, it ended up that um, the, the institutions that were best equipped to thrive in that world were actually um, just tweaks on the legacy, the legacy media business. Um, you also see this with things like peer to peer lending. So in lending club, the original pitch was some people put money in the bank and they make very little interest. Some people need to refinance their credit card debt. They pay really high interest. Why don't we just connect these two people? So instead of earning 2% from a certificate of deposit, you can earn 8% and then someone who's the borrower, instead of paying 25% to Capital One, they're paying 8% to consolidate their credit cards and everybody wins. And then it turned out that one side of that network was actually really hard to solve. And so, you know, unless unless your peers all work at specialty credit funds that are running lending club loan algorithms, it's not, it wasn't peer to peer. It was actually, <laughs> right, right. there was actually this specialization. So I think, I think there's always that instinct to to extrapolate from some technology to totally reimagining the world and to believe that we can actually find this this key to solving human problems in in technology and even in social technology. So one of the bubbles that I talk about in that piece is the conglomerate bubble in the 1960s, where part of the bet was um, previously a lot of companies were run by practitioners. So, you know, Henry Ford started out building cars in his garage. Um, for one of his early cars, he actually, after finishing the prototype, realized it wouldn't fit out the door. So he and his buddies actually um, just knocked down part of the wall of the garage to drive their car out. Um, and then 30 years later, he's running an enormous car company. And the part of the bet in this post-war environment was we can actually figure out the science of managing companies and you can get an MBA and be well-equipped to manage a steel mill or a pharmaceutical company or a retail chain because it's just, it's a business, it's a profession. It's like being a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. Like you, you learn the skills and you can apply them anywhere. And um, so a lot of conglomerates partly reacting to strict antitrust enforcement and partly reacting to that kind of ideology. Um, they ended up, building these wildly eclectic collections of businesses. So um, you'd have a company that owned um, speaker, like a speaker manufacturer and, um, you know, lab equipment company and also a meatpacking plant and a sports, like a sporting equipment brand. And um, the, the thinking was, 
if you put sufficiently smart people in charge, they'll run all of these better than the legacy versions. And it turned out that really wasn't the case um, with basically one exception, um, one exception then, and then a handful of exceptions now. So the exception then was Teledyne, where the founder was actually insanely smart. I think he was on the same MIT Putnam team as Richard Feynman. Um, and so when he he started a little company that um, grew through acquisitions and was just very clever with financial engineering, but it was also run by very technical people who knew what they were buying. And that company did very well, but most of the big conglomerates, they just, they got big. They never had especially impressive returns. And then in the 1980s, they mostly got dismembered by private equity firms that would just find what parts of the business are good, we'll buy those, keep those, what parts of the business are bad, we'll sell those to someone who knows what they're doing. Right. So I think that makes sense. Do you think that, I mean, nowadays, that kind of generalist spirit is a lot more common, I think, right? Um, Do you think it's still, do you think it's over-indexed or under-indexed today, right? Like, are people over-enthusiastic about kind of generalist outsiders or like MBAs, or are they still um, under-enthusiastic about them? I think that people do underrate how much value there is in being sufficiently specialized that you can realistically be the best person in the world or among the best 10 or 20 in some intersection of different domains. Um, There's actually, uh, I'm reluctant to cite him because he keeps getting weirder, but um, when Scott Adams was a lot more normal, (laughs) um, he wrote a post on this where he said that he is not he's not the funniest person and he's not the best artist. And, you know, he doesn't know the most about what it's like to be an office drone, but he's like 75th percentile at all of those. So he was, he, if he chose the domain of I'm going to write a moderately funny, semi well-drawn comic strip that is all about day-to-day life as an office worker by nailing just that very precise intersection, he was able to be the best in the world at that. And um, I think it's plausible to say like Dilbert was the best, workplace comic strip in the world because no one was trying to compete and by the time he'd created that category it was really clear that if you were competing people would just think of you as the worst dilbert or at least the less well-known dilbert (laughs) so um i think there is a lot of value in doing things like that i think that distribution has gotten like organic distribution um you're always fighting this losing battle where every product that offers organic distribution does treat that organic distribution as the runway for their future ad business so you do have to do it in a hurry but it is certainly possible to get a lot more well known through twitter or through even things like niche group chats or whatever like you can you can achieve some minor level of fame such that for a very narrow domain you are the one person to talk to and um i think I think people people underrate that, and partly underrate that because you it takes a long time to get any reasonable feedback on that, and it just you will take like you will spend years um, just learning your topic and writing things that nobody cares about and nobody wants to read. But um, if you're doing something that is at least somewhat meaningful, it will eventually like the headlines headlines will eventually converge with your area of expertise, especially if you've chosen an area that is interesting because it's changing, and and then you have a big opportunity. Actually, the most recent example of this that came up um, on my radar was uh, this guy. Um, his his blog his name is John Maxfield. His blog is Maxfield on Banks, and he 
has spent years and years learning how banks work and understanding how to analyze them and figuring out what drives their economics. And then um, he basically started publishing right after the SVB collapse, like right after. I see. Um, and so suddenly that kind of expertise is incredibly valuable. Um, I don't actually follow this advice directly because my my newsletter is very generalist and I do tend to have a, a generalist approach to a lot of things. But um, I the things that I do um, would be a lot harder if there weren't people like Maxfield on Banks or like Dylan Patel and um, Doug O'Loughlin doing semis, um, like, and, you know, Patrick McKenzie writing about fintech. Like these people are all um, being very, they're very deep experts on topics that I am not an expert on, but I'm able to read them. They're able to summarize things and able to highlight things that are salient to a generalist and plugging all of those different things together and also trying to, to link to these people and make sure that they're actually on the radar of people who'd be interested in what they have to say is, is part of what I try to do. Right. Yeah. This is something that I've just gone 180 on of before my kind of model of things was basically that like maybe that's just due to the size of my writing i mean my writing is so much less popular than yours at this point um but um yeah my initial interpretation was that like okay if you are writing you have to offer something that's like basically completely unique completely you know novel not replicated anywhere else um or else you know you'll you'll just be like the worst version you'll be the worst Dilbert all right um but I don't think that's the case now in the Substack world I think you know a lot of people just do link posts right and that actually contributes a lot to their audience a lot of people um do these kind of yeah summaries or reinterpretations or just gathering like takes from the internet right um I I don't think I've like yeah I, I don't think I still try to stick to basically something that is either original or just like very underrated, something that's like very rarely written about. But I think that like, I appreciate the utility a lot more now that I'm kind of actively looking for things rather than kind of just seeing, seeing what's interesting. I appreciate the utility much more of basically people who are just link posting or summarizing things. Yeah, I think I think link posts are great. I think it's a it is a great way to very quickly sort and basically, you know, they're they're sort of performing the same role of um, of admissions officers at elite universities, where it's like it's not that every employer wants to hire every single person who gets admitted to Harvard. It's not like everyone wants to date every single person who's admitted to Yale. But it is true that there's a there's a cutoff being applied and that you you at least know that um a randomly selected person has you know some set of traits and that the average average within that group is you know is is knowable so i think that's that's part of what what the link roundups do and then link roundups plus commentary even better and link roundups like what i try to do with my link roundups is like it's either um this happened and it is more important than is widely recognized and so i'm going to highlight it or this happened and it is being widely misinterpreted or like anything where it's not just here is a list of the the same things that 
every morning email, like every morning newsletter from every major media publication is going to summarize for you. Um, it's more like here are things where you could have a differentiated view or where it's it's actually an interesting example of or counterexample to a broader phenomenon that's worth understanding. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Like most link posts that I'm that I like, which I guess there there is a kind of a selection effect there. Um, yeah, actually, I don't know. Like, is, is the more okay? So, so I'm gonna talk about the difference between stuff that I like um, that's mostly like Substack link posts and um, and like legacy media link posts or like you know recommendations. Um, I I just find that the Substack ones are just much less driven by kind of salience and are quite frankly, like just less stupid. <laughs> um, like, you know, there, there will always be, there, there's a genre of kind of like somewhat political anecdotes that just seem to suck up all of the oxygen, right? I don't mean anecdotes as in like things about like senators or things about, you know, like actually important things that are happening, but um, actually, I wrote an article about this a long time ago when I was focused more on like political theory. And it's like it, it's the thing that can like tell that can like sell a story regardless of what your of, of what the like actual truth or importance to people's lives are. Right. Like things like it doesn't have to be statistically representative. It doesn't actually have to matter to anyone in the audience. This happens really on both sides. It's kind of like always present of of just like just like meaningless um yeah just just meaningless like signaling right it's kind of like the it's kind of like the robin hansen thing of people would rather argue about morals than um facts and so we're gonna bring up this random anecdote like the the left-wing version of it is like police shootings the the right-wing version of it is like drag queen story hour or whatever right it's just like this is no statistical significance. It does not matter to you. It does not matter to, you know, like the median person aside from basically like, Oh, it's going to create, you know, some kind of political debates. And the Substack version version is just like, for me is much more informative. Um, Of course, I'm not taking a random sample of Substacks. I'm subscribing to the Substacks that I like. And yeah, like, like I'm, I'm sure no media, no like at scale media operation is really being statistically influenced by people like me. Um, but yeah, true. Like, this is like the, this the is curse like of having kind of taste cultural. is like, it's not mass, like there's no mass market for, for niche tastes. And so, yeah, you know that you like your right. media consumption habits, even if they're, if they're relatively virtuous, just won't actually affect what the median media person does I, I think you know on the on the topic of like those those stories where it's an anecdote it's really powerful like it very you know pushes the, the right emotional buttons but if you think about it in broader context it just like you have to know that in a country as big as america this kind of thing happens with a certain amount of regularity even if in in those same statistical terms like it will not happen to you um right it, exactly it, exactly it brings up like the the scott alexander toxoplasma of rage thing where that actually yeah. becomes part of the argument is one side says, well, this, you know, this thing happened and we were telling you it would happen and now it's happening. And the other side says, well, 
this thing almost never happens. Like the last time it happened was two years ago. And so when you say it always happens, you mean it barely happens. And then they both get to go back and forth between the object level, like, yeah, it did actually happen. And then the meta level, like statistically, it almost never happens. And yeah, every side, each side is vulnerable to specific instances of that where they, they do wildly extrapolate. Like they take, you know, the, the way they think about the class is the, the most extreme instance of that class. And then the data that they use to support that it includes many less extreme instances of the same class. So they get to say, right, right. this happens all the time, even though I can only think of three times it happened in the last 10 years. Yeah, I, I think like that kind of bias is just so interesting to me because it's like, it's one of those things that are just so transparent when they're doing it. Right. Like, actually, I, I know a few like now that I've gotten to know kind of um, more people in right wing media, I almost like I don't know, like too many people in left wing media. So there might be like a skewing here. But like, the, I think people in right wing media are kind of more aware of it. They like do it anyway. But people in right wing media, I think kind of know that like, OK, this is like a silly story, but we're doing it for engagement. Um, I think that understanding is much lower on the left-wing side. Like, like not zero, right? Like, I don't know Ezra Klein, but I look at someone like Ezra Klein, who I think is capable of producing just many very intelligent observations. And he's, I, I look at that and I think like, or I look at look at his work and think, he, he has to know that police shootings aren't significant to the country in any way whatsoever. And that this is all a grift, right? Like he, he has to know that he, he's like, but there's much less sign of it as opposed to like, I mean, maybe, maybe at this point, like maybe if I knew kind of Ezra Klein in person, then I would know and I would be like much clearer. Um, but even, even kind of like public markers, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if my thinking is distorted on this or not, but I think like even public markers of kind of like how right-wing journalists react to their own stories or like the o other like right-wing journalists' stories are a bit more indicative that they kind of get that it's fake. Um, so I'm, I think one of the dynamics here is like people, people who are part of the elite, and you can say that media... You know, they're they're a part of the elite in the sense that they do get to somewhat shape public perception, even though some of what they do has to be shaped by public perception. Um, you know, they everyone who's in that position has this instinct to be elitist towards somebody, and I think on the left it feels okay to be elitist towards the right. You know, they're they're less well educated, they're more violent, um, they're you know super like they're religious fanatics, whatever. But then on the right, the the elites within the right also feel a lot safer being elitist towards other people on the right and saying, yeah, you know, this is a big, we, we like work for national review. We live in New York. We, we have these upper class tastes that we can barely afford. And so we're not like those other people. We're just working on their behalf. <laughs> so yeah, they right. like both sides feel like punching, punching rural and punching, you know, some college and middle-class and 2.5 or more children um, is is totally safe, and so yeah, I guess I guess people on the right can be a little more open to that. Um, I think there's also I, I've been thinking about you know when people get into partisan media, what are they trying to be? Who are they trying to be? And it, I always had this impression that there are a lot of people who move to New York or DC 
they're right leaning and they like writing and they all want to be William F. Buckley. And then <laughs> they realize there's just so much more money in being the lesser Rush Limbaugh than there ever could be in being William F. Buckley. And William F. Buckley had family money. So um, he like, he's, he's definitely not an example of something you can do to make a living. It's something you can do if like in your early retirement as, as a member of the, the, the aristocracy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tough to figure out who, you know, who they're trying to emulate. But I, I do think a lot of them do end up realizing that, yeah, there are, there are buttons you can push to get engagement. And, um, and I think the, the hope is always that you can draw people towards more sophisticated thinking, but even that gets crowded out because if, if you can always compete on being more populist then necessarily populism crowds out just about everything else. Yeah. I don't think that's the, or like, I don't know, maybe some people hope that, but I don't think it's all too common. I think people just want to win. Right. Like, I don't think like, I don't think you go into politics and are like, I'm just going to make people more rational. Um, Maybe, maybe like people who post on less wrong think that. Right. But I don't think many people who work in partisan media think that at all. Um, Well, the, so libertarians do seem to think that, um, but they always lose. So they, maybe, they maybe that tells you this, something. this is a misconception. They don't always lose. Um, they they do like they got craft beer. I, I think like weed. this is the this is the point. Like like this is the point that's kind of made by um, Brian Kaplan, right? Relative to the preferences of the voters, you know, like which have been the same for basically all of the time that we've been measuring it libertarians could be doing a lot worse you know like just the existence of a lot of elite institutions makes it so that the world is a lot more libertarian than it would be otherwise um on the other hand like yeah they they are kind of bad at demagoguery and really like the only tool for demagoguery is just like vaguely gesturing and and like saying the word freedom Right. Sorry, go on. No, I think I, I think that's reasonable. Like it's it is like libertarianism is just an unpopular opinion, and so the yeah the fact that the fact that immigration is is where it is that taxes are where they are, and um, the gay marriage would have would have taken it was it was certainly less less popular among like like broadly than it was among libertarians. So in in that sense, you do. You do have some libertarian victories here and there. I suppose that is that is a bit unfair of me. Um, I think like the broad sweep, in part because it's just gotten the governments have gotten um, more effective at some things, and to the extent that they're ineffective, they've gotten better at still getting large budgets to do ineffective things at scale. Like the world is getting gradually less libertarian, and as more data becomes available, and as as more of the world functions through these complicated software-driven supply chains, um, I think there is there's an argument for argument that we should expect the world to get significantly less libertarian over time. So you have um, like a small number of financial choke points can just um, eliminate someone's ability to to make a living or run a business, and that does mean that there can be these soft limits on on speech and behavior that are enacted through some layer of the payment system. Um, so in that sense, that is like a, a libertarian loss, but it's not. It's not like um, someone lobbied for that. It's just that's that's what happens when more more payments happen digitally, and when um, outrage can spread online. Is 
you get a lot more people booted by their payment provider because there was a, you know, people got mad on Twitter or something. Right. There's like a simultaneous thing happening where there's kind of like more oligarchic interference and like fewer and like more kind of action by regulators, by kind of appointed regulators and just less substantive legislation. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not I'm never sure how to how to um pair those things up like like Ezra Klein has two models of like what happens when there's polarization right one is kind of like vitocracy which I think he says is the U.S. model and then the other is like the pendulum right which is maybe more South American countries you get a very left-wing um president or leader um does a lot of extreme left-wing reforms um is people are angry at that replaced by a very right-wing guy does a lot of extreme right-wing reforms um people are angry at him and so on and so forth um to me like the best interpretation of the u.s that is that it is kind of like it is doing the vetocracy for like legislation but it's doing the pendulum for like basically regulatory enforcement actions um yeah i'm not sure how to model that like like is that going to result in less destructive fewer destructive actions in the long run or more destructive actions in the long run uh, i'm not quite sure um that, that's one of the big questions i'm pretty confident that like that is what's happening but i don't know if that's like a net good or a net negative i think some of it depends on how quickly effectively and subtly people can work around regulations so if you have a set of rules like there's a set of new rules that means there's a, a set of new loopholes and if people are very effective at finding those loopholes and they're always a step ahead of the regulators, then you have de facto libertarian, like you basically have libertarianism with some sort of um, like a de facto tax layered on top, which is you right. have to either spend the time or hire the people to figure out how to do what you want to do. Um, but I think like de- rewinding slightly to the polarization point, um, one of the theses I've been thinking about recently with respect to political polarization is that um, I was reading the the Robert Caro LBJ books, like like all of us must do now. It's it's the the trendy thing, and they're great. But one of the interesting things in those books is they take place at a time when we were the U.S. was statistically less polarized in the sense that there was a lot more overlap between Republican and Democratic views. But if you look at what the coalitions were at the time, it was basically the Democrats were a party of um, liberals from big cities, especially on the East Coast, and then um, Southern segregationists. And then Republicans were this sort of centrist party also concentrated in big cities. And then um, these um, mostly middle American isolationists who were also pro-segregation, or at least nominally okay with it. And so that that creates overlap, but it only creates overlap because there was this one massive issue where, in part because of the structure of the Senate, it was very hard to pass civil rights bills. So it was always a live issue and never really changed. And it turned out to be a bipartisan issue on both sides. So that, that can engineer a ton of what looks like depolarization, but it's actually just polarization that doesn't happen to align with the parties. And I think... That is that is part of what's going on. When, when you read the blow-by-blow blow descriptions of how LBJ got some things through the Senate, it's always like you have this cantankerous Nebraskan senator who thinks that the U.S. should pull, like, should you know, 
get out of um, get out of Western Europe and let the chips fall where they may. And then you also have this Southern senator who is just really obsessed with race, and they have almost they have this one really salient thing in common. And then on that view, on that issue, which to them is more important than other issues, um, like that that matters to them more than other issues, and is not really a party thing. So um, it's possible that we could end up in the future with some set of issues, maybe it will be AI where there's like big business Republicans love AI and then um, big business Democrats love AI. And then there's this populist fringe on both sides where maybe the left critique is AI is being run by big corporations. And then the right critique is AI is destroying small business and unraveling the social fabric. And that would actually statistically lead to less polarization in the sense that the parties would actually be more aligned in terms of their views. But that's totally compatible with riots and, you know, political assassinations and things. Um, so I, I wonder about how we measure polarization. And there's, there's some study that tries to measure it going way, way back. And if you look at any of the object level examples, like it is just um, the, the party identifications don't really make sense. And um, categorizing, categorizing someone from 1890 as closer to a modern Democrat or closer to a modern Republican is just this impossible topic. Like politics, it's always happening at some kind of, some version of the efficient frontier where there's a live issue that matters to voters and that seems like it could be amenable to change. And what those live issues are is basically always changing. So it's very hard to go back and say which party matches, like which set of issues matches to what which party would want to do. Right, right. There, there are modern metrics for these. Um, so yeah, there, there's kind of like two things here. Um, kind of three, but like mostly two matter. Um, which is um, issue polarization, basically how extreme are people's actual policy preferences, and then like affective polarization, right? Which is basically like how people feel about the other party. Um, and issue polarization has not been going up that much, right? It actually went. It went up more in the Obama era, right? Which, which kind of makes sense. That's like the whole um, Tea Party. Um, like, the, really, the last time there was a kind of like public revival of uh, fiscal conservatism. And then, yeah, post that, you know, like, sure, there are differences on like cultural effects, but Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both actually like on policy issues, relatively moderate candidates right and yes so so like an interesting consequence of this is that like to me at least the kind of high affective polarization low issue polarization quadrant is just just like the best quadrant to be sitting in because you know doing like the uh counterintuitive um public choice theory again right like there are people, there are people like Ezra Klein and Jonathan Haidt who say, you know, like the parties just have this pathological hatred of each other and refuse to cooperate, even when it would be, you know, a 60% or 70% very popular issue, right? I just observe this and say like, okay, well, let's look at those issues. Are they actually good? And in many cases, um, most of those issues are kind of just like bans of technology or like, like really like the, just like the most destructive things. And like just kind of not just extrapolating from that, but kind of just like taking the current, you know, like present day level data of that. And it's just like, oh, polarization has probably been a net positive. Um, right. So I've given 
Yeah, I've, I don't think I've given this argument on the podcast yet, but I do think I'll have an article about this probably up as well. Um, just just really like criticizing the kind of height. Um, Andrew Yang, Ezra, well, like Ezra Klein kind of wants it for like partisan uh, left-wing reasons, which is kind of more understandable. Like I still disagree with it, but it's kind of like, yeah, that's his self-interest, I guess. But yeah, like Jonathan Haidt, especially, I think is just, it's weird because he, he kind of has everything except for the last step, but he just, just is like completely missing that last kind of like very small piece of logic there. Um, right. Or, or like the cynical interpretation is that he's just as partisan as, as recline. He just doesn't admit it, um, which is also kind of understandable. Uh, I think he would pretend to admit it. He, I think he would be happy to write an essay where at an object level, he says, by the way, I'm extremely biased and probably like, you know, I like things that my party wants, even though, even to the point where they're kind of dumb objectively. But I think he would also try to code it as, because I'm aware of this, I would never actually advocate something dumb just because it's the party line. Um, that is just my guess from reading him. Cause he is like, he's self-aware, but you, there, there are always these limits to self-awareness where once you start talking about being self-aware, you're sort of giving yourself permission to do the bad thing you're self-aware about, because at least, you know, you're, you're you know, it's bad, which is strictly worse than, than not doing it, whether or not you're oblivious to why. But I, um, I wanted to go back to the point on basically gridlock being good because I sure. um, I used to absolutely buy into that, but I think that there is a missing ingredient there, which is um, gridlock is great when we're when the status quo is great and when there are no no meaningful threats because anything the government does probably makes things worse because things are fine, but if things are are not fine or are potentially getting worse, then gridlock is very bad, then you you can't do anything to prepare for what's coming or fix problems as they're growing. So I, I, I think some of this just depends on A, how fundamentally optimistic you are, B, where you think we are in history. And um, I, I tend to have like a long-term, somewhat optimistic view of things, and then just by di- disposition, a more negative view of immediate issues. And I do... I do think that um, I would rather operate, I would rather live under a more functional government with slight partisan disagreements than a, you know, the current dysfunctional government, regardless of its net partisan affiliation. Like, I think there are, there are things that need to get done. Um, they need to get done in fairly short order. Uh, vitocracy is not, uh, not helpful in that scenario. And I think the the best thing to hope for is, um, in many cases, like private sector solutions, but private sector is small and doesn't have the same coordinating ability the government does. Yeah, I think you're missing a piece of the quadrant there, which is that, which is things get worse, government makes it even more worse. Um, Entirely which, possible. which is the COVID quadrant, right? Um, that is the COVID quadrant. Um, yeah, like like the best thing that the government did, and and I do want to say, you know, like shout out to Alex Tabarrok and all the libertarians who helped make it happen. But like the best thing that government did was roll back the reach of the FDA for o- Operation Warp Speed, right? It, it was to like do less stuff, and everything, almost everything else, was just like an unmitigated disaster, right? Like banning COVID tests. Yes. Um, uh, 
in many cases, like creating pressure on exactly, I think like, yeah, Shvi Moshewitz wrote about this, right? Creating pressure on exactly, or like creating additional scrutiny on exactly the institutions who you would want to reduce the amount of scrutiny on, right? Like, yeah, I think Shvi's just been great on this. Um, Yeah, it's, it's just like, and to me, it's like a non like you, you basically said, you know, like in the cases where things are getting worse, you want the government to intervene more. Um, and to me, that's just not only like non-obvious, but at least most of the time false. Right? So I think there there are different categories of of scenarios. So like you can imagine if you imagine a um, let's like hypothetically a u.s government with the state capacity of singapore where in january of 2020 the the regular meetings that the president has been having to discuss the spread of the novel coronavirus they they conclude that a travel ban would be a good idea and you know an hour later it's implemented and you know every plane that's in the air lands and no more there's no more international travel for a while like things Things like that. It is it is possible to imagine a version of two weeks to stop the spread, where over a two week period the spread does indeed get stopped, and um, a lot of PPE gets purchased, and everyone has their their COVID passport app, and the app actually works, and we have like enough you know enough of a lockdown that we get RT to below one, and then we gradually titrate freedoms up as. Uh, until we actually reach the point where the disease is spreading and then we pull back. Like it's, it's hypothetically possible to imagine the U S government um, like a government doing that. And um, I think it's also, it would be very unfortunate if we had that level of state capacity, but also turn COVID into a partisan issue. We, we, we like did that um, several times. Cause like COVID in January was a right wing issue. It was right coded. And then in March it was left coded and now vaccines are this weird trans party issue where um, like median Republican, fairly skeptical of vaccines. There's a tale of Democrats who are also skeptical for, you know, back to nature and like classic um, hippie anti-vax reasons. And then Trump is wildly pro-vaccine because of Operation Warp Speed that he wants to take credit. And then median Democrat is fairly to wildly pro-vaccine. Um like we so we've had all these weird partisan perturbations that just made it really hard to have any kind of coherent policy and the incoherent policy that's always this balance between um you know let it rip versus lock everyone down versus ostensibly lock everyone down but if people don't follow the rules let them do what they want versus wait we've noticed that people who are breaking like communities where these rules are not getting enforced have really high infection rates so th- there must be something wrong with this because they're getting arrested and they're also getting sick like um when you turn it into more of a partisan issue it is way less feasible to actually do anything about it so i think you know in that case we can we can calibrate the the question on when gridlock is good and when it is bad to say that there are problems that the U.S. faces where the U.S. does actually have the state capacity to address them. And I would view stuff like, I, I would view fentanyl as approaching that level. Um, drug overdoses seem to keep going up. It seems like a big problem. It also seems like a, a symptom of other problems. 
Um, that seems like something where it would not be not be good for anyone if this turned into a political issue, which you know it's not it's not going to be like there's a pro fentanyl party and there's an anti fentanyl party, but I think um, it could easily turn into an issue where there's like a pro um, you know aggressive crackdown and let's you know let's string up the drug dealers kind of side, and then there's like a pro treatment but also never arrest anybody for selling these drugs side and they both manage to veto the other side and nothing gets done right so so like there's this narrative that basically u.s state incompetence pre or like resulted from polarization and that just does not match the timeline of state incompetence and polarization um yeah i have an article about this also criticizing height um but yeah uh i am just very skeptical of that case on the empirics i'm not sure if you you actually believe that but i think that was one of the assumptions that like we got bad state capacity because we because the state is polarized um, um I, if anything, I don't, it looks I, like kind of the opposite, although I'm not sure there's any connection there at all. Um I think the state capacity boom was that um it, it was basically a like it's it's one of those talent demographic things where right, anytime right. there's an industry that all the smart right. people yeah. go into, um yeah, everyone like it becomes a really effective industry. Like all the smart people went into tech after the financial crisis and suddenly tech was a great place to be and um because they were all building, like a lot of them were building tools for other tech companies to use. Like you as a smart person going into tech know that Facebook is building really good marketing tools for you. And so is Google and AWS is building a really good infrastructure for you. Like they're solving a lot of problems that are complementary to having more people in the industry. And I think yeah, working working for the federal government in 1932, or not 32, like going to work for the federal government in like 1935 was basically that. It's like, that is where you go if you're ambitious and want to get stuff done. And, you know, turning back to LBJ, like he was, he was running a very large organization at a very young age. And if he had somehow finagled the job at Humble Oil or General Motors or something, he would not have gotten promoted nearly that fast. So yeah, you have a lot of Smart people go in early, they form connections, they have a lot of social capital with, with one another. The institutions are new and fresh and haven't gotten too bureaucratized. And, um, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that that process starts in the 30s. And then when the people who joined the federal government in the 1930s are reaching retirement age in the 60s and 70s, that's exactly when the government starts to get less effective. And like in the in the 70s, one of the most effective things that the, the federal government did was deregulating trucking and airlines and um, to some extent banking. Although it's always, always very tricky to a talk about the positive or impact negative impact of deregulating something in finance and b because banking is just fundamentally like practically an arm of the government anyway. Um, deregulation is always just a weird term to apply to that. Right. Yeah, we can definitely talk about uh that as well that that's like the only um yeah that that's the major thing we haven't talked about yet right i'm not sure how enthusiastic my uh listeners are for kind of the nth silicon valley bank episode um not of this podcast of just podcasts in general um but yeah so so with regards to so with regards to these kind of yeah with regards to state capacity um i think i have a more skeptical or like i don't know actually maybe it's kind of equally 
so so these are these are um narratives that can kind of coexist but um yeah this more general theory of kind of institutional selection you have essentially i'm sure you've heard the steve jobs quote of like a players a players only hire a players b players hire um b c and d players and then you have this whole or like this is not steve jobs but like this is um me you have this shift from from um competition for capability or for basically you know getting the job done towards competition for status and for signaling we talked about kind of office politics signaling um earlier but it's not just that it's kind of the 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 affect of the kind of even the things that are related to the company change um of just if there is a disagreement if there is a failure if there is just an observable metric that has done badly do you deal with that in a kind of agreeable coalition building tone or do you deal with that in a kind of pursuit of truth tone um and and tone is kind of underrating it right this is not just about you know how do you talk to your um employees or to your boss but also about kind of what decisions you actually make does the person get fired at the end of the day for example or demoted so on and so forth basically like how truthy an organization is is like just a decreasing function and um the u.s government is just one such organization that's been undergoing this process for a long time um in either case like like regardless of the specifics there right i I think it's kind of yeah maybe this is what i should say to the kind of state capacity libertarians is like if you can get state capacity then i'll consider depolarization but i am both very skeptical of the ability to kind of reconstruct state capacity um and given given the lack of state capacity or kind of state wisdom there should just be more polarization fair enough i um i think there are just very few institutions or industries that have always always been terrible or that have always been great like they're always they seem to always be um like by default they're in a state of decline and then in some cases they're they're going through some golden age where they're growing and actually getting more effective as they grow and so that is that is one one case for saying the the rise in american state capacity starting in the 1930s could only happen once because you can't increase government spending from single digit percentage of gdp to 20% or you know 15 to 20% you can't you can't do that multiple times without eventually running out of gdp and every time you do it you do have like every time you do a large increase in the size of government and in the scope of what it does you have more legacy government stuff to deal with but um and i don't know what the what the alternative is like a lot of this stuff is is pretty hard to privatize and um it seems it seems very opaque but maybe maybe even something as as simple as um having having actual KPIs for government agencies. And I'm not sure what those KPIs would be, but it'd be interesting to look at those and, you know, have like, there should be, you know, a department of education dashboard where you can look at it and see is the department of education actually doing what it is supposed to do or not. And, you know, do we actually agree on what it's supposed to do or do we not? Um, and this gets kind of close to the the Singapore style thing where you, you pay your civil servants better and you actually give them some measure of success and then fire them if they can't achieve it, um, which may just not, not work well in a U.S. context. But um, it's possible 
it's possible maybe for for new projects i guess the chips act was was a wasted opportunity but if there if there had been like if the us had set up a chip czar who has a budget and then they have some some metric like x percent of you know current node chips must be produced in the united states by this date then we would like they would be able to see that that's their goal and then anything they do gets evaluated based on does this help achieve the goal or is this irrelevant and not going to get done and if you look at the chips act it's it's very clear that it it started with more concrete goals and then started adding all of these provisions so you know did stuff kind of pandering to the right not in the sense of um not in the sense of ideologically but in the sense of just which which like who do the people who benefit from this vote for where there's a lot of buy american provisions and then pandering more to the left with things like you know every chip fab must have a daycare um my assumption would be like if you if you think that the us being able to domestically manufacture chips at the 3 nanometer node is a high priority one of the things you might do to express that is say that we are going to loosen a lot of the laws that companies have to like workplace related laws that companies have to adhere to because our priority is the chips and not you know having the third or fifth most relevant semiconductor industry but at least having daycares in in our obsolete fabs um so yeah it it started out looking good and then got got worse and worse through a process of compromise but that process of compromise was partly an artifact of polarization and yet the polarization was not strong enough to veto the bill entirely it was just just strong enough to make it worse right so the argument here is that polarization contributes to the kind of public choice theory um version of this um yeah i'm I, i'm still skeptical even that like soft version i'm a little bit skeptical of right like like i guess if you just have overwhelming majorities of people who just of senators who just want to give an up and down vote and don't want to do and are just not under any or like just don't feel like they need to edit it in order to benefit their specific constituencies and this might be true but um yeah i I just think public choice theory is the leading kind of explanation here i don't think it has like like this is not something that is completely novel right even going back to like i'm not sure if you consider this worse or better but going back to like the lyndon johnson thing a lot of it was just like pretty much bribing people right like like if we just changed the bill changed took the original bill and just added a bunch of you know de facto bribes instead of watering it down and doing all of these kind of like signaling things would that be better i guess it would right like yeah well, my, i can kind of see the, the argument thing, that like the bribery version is just better i think it depends on the form of the bribe so my my general annoyance with a lot of um a lot of bills where there's like there's one goal and then we realize hey this is good for some people it's either irrelevant for other people or bad for them so let's make it good for for more people is that it often it often takes the form of adding frictional costs so right. um you know if we say we're going to build these chip fabs oh wait it turns out that because we haven't built these in a while um we won't necessarily be able to source all of the most cost effective components from america we have to get them from places where people do this more regularly more effectively like if if the end goal is just 
make American manufacturers and make American construction companies do better, then that could just be done totally separately. You could have the chips and also we're going to build a new highway somewhere act or the like chips and we're also going to subsidize other companies that buy American act. Um, and I also think doing doing it through an additional subsidy rather than doing it through a conditional subsidy does help because if you do it through an additional subsidy, you're basically outsourcing the question of what is the most efficient way to do this to whoever is going for the subsidy. But if you do a conditional subsidy, you're basically saying we need the private sector to do this. The public sector can't do it. But also the public sector does know how it should be done. And if the private sector does it on its own, it's going to do it all wrong. And I think that's right. Like, no one no one actually thinks that. Like no one thinks, well, you know, the people at TSMC, I got it right that time. The people at TSMC, they, they don't know nearly as much about building chip fabs as we do about they would say like they're they're going to build them in tsmc's interest and not necessarily in the broader interest of americans and i think you just you have to pick at somebody you have to say like this is a chips bill it's about chips and to the extent that something someone else has to get a bribe to get it through that bribe should have as little to do with the core function of the bill as possible and that is something that you know i think there were a couple of cases in in the lbj book where he would do something to alter the bill in such a way that it was actually um, somewhat neutered or completely neutered. But that was a deliberate political maneuver. That was basically him right. simultaneously casting a veto and being able to say that he passed a bill. Um, this is this is a little bit different. This is not, I don't think anyone tried to modify the bill um, specifically to make sure that Taiwan and South Korea were um we're safe from American chip consumption, although it's sometimes from American chip production. Although it, um, it sometimes looks that way, um, I think it was just I, de- the, I definitely the think process that happened at effective. some point. Like, like there's no way um, any industry, any country with such a strategic industry, is going to be good at lobbying, or else it would not have said strategic industry anymore. Um, yeah, I would be. I would not only be willing to bet money that that definitely happened, but that there will be like a report that that happened within like the next year. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, that like, like the political economy there just seems very straightforward. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know really how to kind of expand that. Maybe I need to ask ChatGPT, you know, expand that into a paragraph. But to me, like, there's, there's a very simple point, which is that if you're running a strategic export-dependent cu- country, or sorry, industry, or like you're a country with a strategic export industry, and there are countries around the world who are considering banning those industries, to me, it's like, yeah, if you're going to survive for any, and this is not like the first time there's been um, a related sort of panic, right? There are many trade panics across history. You're either going to have a highly functional lobbying arm or you will be regulated out of existence. Well, um, I think, so in a lot of cases, the process seems to be that they are good at lobbying within their country. So they get protectionism, you know, protection from cheaper imports and they, they get a captive market, they can overcharge, and then they use that to subsidize international expansion and they eventually get to sufficient scale that they can actually compete pretty fairly internationally. So like a lot of a lot of the US and Japan trade relationship was that 
American companies notice that Japan just doesn't really want to import American cars, but does want to export Japanese cars. Um, they did some fairly gratuitous things. I, I forget if it was with cars or some other product where one of the rules was that um, for the, one of the ins- part of the inspection process for this vehicle was um, lift it up with a crane and drop it 20 feet and just see what happens, which was just like basically just telling Americans, if you send cars to Japan, we will destroy one of them to show you how we feel about it. And um, it's hard <laughs> to get good margins if some of your shipment gets trashed. Um, but they they didn't do as much lobbying within the U.S. Um, I think they just, in part, they didn't really have the the pull to do that, and um, and you know, in part, it would have looked bad. In fact, there's um, there are anecdotes about Japanese car companies trying to get American car companies to make more fuel efficient cars in the 60s and 70s because Japan was very worried about access to oil and. Um, there were the government was encouraging people to to learn Arabic and was trying to build up relationships with the Arab world and things um, well before the oil crisis. And they were actually worried that like Japanese automakers were worried that there would be a backlash against Japanese exports when oil prices went up and Japanese cars were more fuel efficient and America wasn't making any fuel efficient cars. So they actually wanted GM and Ford to to make lighter, more lightweight cars that uh, that didn't burn as much gas. Specifically so that they, they felt like they could still compete head-to-head against uh, a smaller, more efficient Ford, and they really didn't want to compete against Ford on the lobbying side where they could compete with cars instead. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, so inexperience with foreign lobbying, um, yeah, just not having enough connections there. Uh, yeah, that, that, that seems plausible. Um, yeah, I'll look into that. Do you have any recommendations for that that episode especially um let me i'll find the book um actually i can i know where the book is in my office i will run and grab it so i can get you the title just a second. sure awesome All right, it's The Reckoning by David Halberstam. Awesome. Uh, and it's David really good. Halberstam. Halberstam, okay. I'll definitely have that uh, in the notes as well. Um, awesome, yeah. So, so the last thing I have on my, on my prep is just like a section labeled kind of trading and crystallized knowledge. Um, you can guess you can guess which which quotes comes first here, right? I think so. Yeah, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah. So, so you you were talking on another podcast about kind of um, uh, Warren Buffett and his kind of um, his just knowledge of like random costs and kind of unit uh, economies. Um, yeah, I think that like yeah, we we also mentioned at the beginning. Of like in many cases, people who are um, even people who are very successful in trading are not quite sure, kind of like, or, or at least are not quite able to articulate their strategy and their kind of position. Do, do you think that this is something that's, um, do you think that's something that's especially prevalent in trading, or do you think that that's j- just based on kind of what it rewards, or do you think that that's just it's just like the same as the baseline level. 
I think it's going to be slightly, slightly to very more common in trading because with with a lot of domains, you are you're partly interacting with the real world and you're partly betting on some gap between perception and reality. So, like when you write your newsletter, you are partly trying to bet that there you know there isn't going to be someone else who writes as well on the specific topic you've chosen. So that's like you making this this relative bet about the overall market. And then there's also the absolute bet of you write a good post and it's good. And um, with different domains, there's this different mix of that absolute versus relative knowledge. So if you think about someone who's doing pretty pure research, um, the relative knowledge bit, the bit where you say, I'm going to focus on solving this problem rather than the other one specifically because no one is really paying attention to it. That can be a contributor, but a much bigger contributor is just, can you figure out something new and important about the world? And with trading, you you can be always wrong about what's going on in the real world and what's going to happen in the future, as long as you are systematically less wrong than everybody else. And um, you can't really, it's hard to have that kind of profile in in other domains. Like if you were a a mathematician and you can never prove anything but you you always know that someone else is you know researching the wrong topic or taking the wrong angle on a problem they're solving that you know might be useful in some domains but it doesn't i don't think it would make i don't think it'd be great for your career but with trading yeah you can you can be wrong about everything as long as other people are more wrong anytime you happen to be trading with them so it does create this this situation where you're you're constantly trying to figure out what is um, what is more true or less true than people think, and where are people under or overconfident. And you could do that in two directions. So the direction Buffett usually takes, um, like my mental model of Buffett is spends all day reading about companies and pretty much, you know, when a company puts out its annual report, Buffett reads it and asks himself, how much would I pay to own this company? And then... He writes down that number and then periodically will notice that the market value of the company is substantially less than what he would pay to own it. And then he buys the stock or buys the company. So that one is very much based on his view of the real world and that he basically lets lets public opinion fluctuate. And then if you look at someone like um, like Soros, he his career, a lot of his career was looking at public opinion and trying to figure out, um, you know, if people are wildly excited about this. Are they going to get more excited or are they going to change their minds and what will affect that? And fundamentals definitely play into that, but it's looking at the fundamentals as a way to predict sentiment rather than holding fundamentals constant, waiting for sentiment to change, and then acting when when sentiment gives you a favorable opportunity. So both of those, they do involve some level of business analysis and some level of mass psychoanalysis. Um, with with different mixes. But I think where it gets tricky is if you look at Buffett's trades, there are definitely times where not only does he get the fundamentals right, but he pretty much nails the timing. Um, I think there was, there was a case with either Silver or um, the Brazilian Real where he he bought a ton of it and bought it within a couple days of the low that the price would hit. And you would typically expect that a value investor is just not going to time the low. Like they, they will probably start buying when the price is dropping. They will keep on buying as the price goes down. They'll keep buying a bit as the price comes up. And then at some point it's no longer cheap. So they're no longer buying. 
um, being able to actually get it right at the low does indicate some some sense of okay, market's moving. We know that this is too cheap, but we also think it's going to get cheaper. So we're going to wait a little bit, and only then do we pull the trigger and buy. Right. Um, yeah. So in terms of the like the crystallized knowledge question is is interesting, and I it's interesting to me because this is a space that I like, and I like the it is flattering to me that. Um, this is a space where you can just keep on accumulating data and keep on accumulating mental models and continue to perform well after your fluid intelligence has peaked. And since I'm in my 30s, I'm already on the permanent decline unless, you know, unless they invent some really cool new drugs. I'm, I'm on this permanent <laughs> decline where I will be slightly slower every year forever. But I will also know slightly more every year. And there there has to be some point at which the decline in fluid intelligence cannot be offset by more crystallized intelligence. And also you start to get forgetful after a while, but um, it seems to be a pretty long time. Um, it seems like the, the half-life of knowledge in, the half-life of some kinds of finance knowledge is very, very short. So um, I've talked to people who learned everything there was to know about SPACs in you know in 2020 and um now that knowledge is pretty much obsolete but they made a lot of money while they could um people did that with with crypto and with other other financial products and financial situations but then there are other things where just the more information you accumulate and the more patterns you can pattern match to and the more abstractions you get the more likely it is that you will see see something and immediately be able to fit into a model or immediately see that your model has some flaws and then um, once you've fixed up your mental model, you can apply it better elsewhere. So yeah, you just, you can keep accumulating advantages for a very long time in that space. Right. So, so like this brings us back to something we talked about earlier with regards to basically like intuition versus rigor, right? Like this is a very big internal debate among like the rationalists, right? At what point is kind of the marginal unit of rigor and trying to make things clear and articulable and understandable at what point is that like unit a detriment right and i think like the understanding from trading is is that if you're trying to make money then kind of like the stereotypical you know like rationalist way of approaching it is actually like probably better than the average person but like not not the best right not what like not what the best traders are doing. Um, do you, like first of all, do you do you think that that's the case? Um, it's a tricky situation because it does get so hard to think. It gets very hard to model what the best traders are doing, and you know the more the more someone is the best, the, the harder it is to compare them. So right. you know, there's like a whole set of value investors, there's a whole set of quants, and so on, but then. Um, at the at the absolute peak performance, often part of what someone has done is they've played a better meta game than other people. So, um, you know, Warren Buffett is partly one of the reasons he's so rich is that he's very good at reading balance sheets and income statements and finding out which companies are cheap. The other reason he's very rich is that he got a permanent pool of capital. It's cheap capital from insurance, and he spent a very long time getting a reputation as the person you'd want to sell your company to if you if you had to choose if you're going to be rich no matter what um you might be a little bit less rich selling to warren buffett than selling to kkr or another buyout firm but you'll feel better about the company and about the the co-worker about the workers at that company so um that's something he did that where that's the metagame and 
um, you can't really replicate it because if you if you do that playbook again, then at best you are the second best company to sell to after Berkshire Hathaway. But also there are a whole lot more value investors who are also looking for cheap insurance companies that they can take over and use as a platform for building a conglomerate. So yeah, a lot of people are copying the Berkshire model and there's probably more competition to be a mini Berkshire than there is to be Berkshire Hathaway itself because if you're running a hundred million dollars, you know, a lot of money objectively, but a fairly small amount of money um, in the financial scheme of things, there are a lot of different targets you can have. Whereas there are companies that Berkshire could buy that none of the emulators could buy. Um, and then you can see something kind of similar with Rentec, you know, totally different set of strategies, but um, they also basically built a system for ingesting talent and ingesting data and adding adding trading signals, like accumulating trading signals over time, such that um, competing with them first means replicating several decades of institutional and technical work. And only then do you get to the point where you could hypothetically match their performance. But, um, you know, by then they've also had a couple decades to continue to get better. So um, that's, I guess, you know, an extended quibble with the question, but I think it's it's useful to raise the question because I think that's that's an important part of the mental model that you should think about. In terms of the the trade-off where like the trade-off between um in, instinct and rigor, or I forget exactly what term you used. Is that intuition and rigor? But like intuition and rigor. Okay. Um I, so intuition is part of where you get the model that tells you what to be rigorous about. So you, when you're in, in trading, for example, when you're evaluating a company um, from a mostly fundamental but kind of sentiment-aware way, what you're basically trying to do is figure out, okay, what, what variables actually matter to either the success of this company, or at least a public perception of this company. You know, success would be if you're purely a fundamental investor, and then public perception, you know, market perception would be if you're more of a sentiment-based investor, but you're you're doing kind of the same thing. So you ask, what are the variables that actually matter? And then how do we predict those variables and or measure those variables better than anybody else? And if we can systematically do both of those things, then we have a repeatable process for consistently making money. Um, so that's that's a fairly simple sketch, but that does mean that you actually have to figure out what what matters for this company and then what changes what matters. So there were a lot of people who in 2020 and 2021 made a lot of money by knowing that revenue growth was what mattered for companies in enterprise software and in SaaS. And they got very good at predicting revenue. They did a lot of channel checks. They bought a lot of data sets. And so they knew you know, DocuSign is going to keep growing, Bill's going to keep growing, and they're coming in ahead of expectations, they're going to give guidance that is also more optimistic than the market expects, and um, prices kept going up. And then the the investor focus suddenly shifted from pure growth to margins. And so suddenly you had to get really good at analyzing things like, how many people are they going to lay off? At what point are they no longer cutting fat and, you know, cutting into the, the corporate muscle? And um, how messy is it going to be? And if they cut their expenses, how much does that affect sales right now? How much of that is that if you if you double the size of your sales team and then you fire a quarter of your sales team, you're probably firing mostly people who are new and hadn't gotten ramped up in the first place. So maybe that has a small impact on sales right now, but then it has a larger impact on sales two years out because some of those people would have gotten gotten experienced and gotten good. Um, you you have a totally different set of questions to answer. 
And it does become this more intuitive set of questions where now you are not just modeling what do what do other investors think, but you're also modeling what do the managers of this company think? And to what extent do they agree with investors? To what extent are they just humoring investors? Um, I think there's got to be a substantial set of tech companies where they did not have a happy year in 2022, but they also felt this palpable sense of relief that their investors are finally telling them something other than for every dollar you take in, you should be spending three or four dollars on marketing so you can grow at the max, maximum sustainable speed. Like that's a it's an exhausting way to live. It is actually in many ways more fun and satisfying to build a business that can actually turn a profit and um, you know produce some cash for shareholders. So you have to you have to model all of that stuff, and then um, you know the rigor is is how you refine the model and how you decide when to pull the trigger. And it feeds back into the intuition in the sense that as you're doing your research, you may find the same theme showing up over and over again, where, for example, you're, you're looking at um, a set of companies, you know, a set of software companies, you think that the problem in the space is actually a, it's a sales problem and you want to find a company with the best sales team. And then you start to realize that one of these companies is actually um, their their mental model of what the customer wants the product to do is actually totally different. And maybe that's substantially better. Maybe it's substantially worse. So you have to start figuring that out. And um, so, yeah, the in that case, the, the analytical rigor actually feeds back into the intuitive process. And it's just very hard to to separate the two. I would say, like, if you if you find that most of the time that you spend in analysis is filling in numbers in a spreadsheet um, and updating an existing spreadsheet, then that's probably a sign that it's worth it to revisit your fundamental assumptions and make sure you know what are the drivers of value or of stock price changes and and vice versa that if you spend all of your time you know speculating about what is what is cloudflare going to be like in the year 2035 and um you know fun fun stuff like that or you know how how many jobs will ai take away um then it's probably time to start reading more more quarterly um, earning statements and trying to look at okay, can can these companies plausibly actually earn enough money to execute on these wonderful visions we're imagining? Right. Yeah. How about the generalization question? Right. Do, do you think that this this kind of calibration works as well uh, in other areas? let's say let's say both as a founder as perhaps like a politician or a policy staffer right um does or like should you be calibrating do do you get the sense that you should be calibrating more towards intuition more towards rigor in in these different areas of life um so i think the first thing to answer there is like the the question of like does this approach how well does this approach translate to other domains because i i think i think it is basically it would probably be useful for many people to spend a year or two as an analyst at a hedge fund learning how they think um for many people that just wouldn't translate that well to other things they do but having basically always having the attitude of we're going to figure out what things matter we're going to measure them extremely effectively and we're always trying to predict what what mistakes other people are making and what will cause them to stop making those mistakes. It's actually very good, um, not so much for like day-to-day business decisions. It's very good for debates, for understanding arguments, because mm-hmm. when you have a an argument with someone about 
you know, should there should there have been a vaccine mandate or should we have had lockdowns or, you know, should should the U.S. give up on like, should the U.S. have an industrial policy or whatever? Like if you can break that argument down into what are the actual fundamental points of disagreement and what would shift this person's viewpoint or shift my viewpoint, then you can actually get somewhere. Um, and with markets, there's always that clarifying thing of like news happens, you know, the reality actually exists and stock prices actually move. You can figure out if you were right or wrong, or sometimes you figure out, okay, I was right about everything except everyone else also thought that that was true. And so it's irrelevant that I was right. Or I was right about everything except something else happened that turned out to be much more important that I was totally oblivious to. Like, you know, someone had been shorting Microsoft because, um, there's going to be a slowdown in software spending. Well, they were, you know, if they think that was happening this year, they were right about that. And then they were wrong about the AI hype and Microsoft's shares went up. Um, so you can, you can be like right about the things that you're paying attention to and then wrong about which things matter and still, still lose a lot of money. Um, but I think where, where you can go too far with this is if you treat every issue as if there is some kind of potential information asymmetry and once you collapse it, you've won the game. Um, a lot of issues just don't right. work that way. Like it's not an information asymmetry between you and one other person. It's actually an information asymmetry between you and reality. And in that case, thinking like a hedge fund person is pretty much worthless. But um, the more the more complicated the institutions you're part of and the more fraught the arguments you're having, the more those interpersonal dynamics do end up adding the majority of the noise and uncertainty to the outcome. So having, having a, little a little practice as a hedge fund analyst or um, probably as a, a prop trader or something would probably be quite healthy for people. And um, it's just like the temptation then is to say, okay, I am going to, you know, I really buy into this. I'm going to take a year off and just spend that year analyzing stocks or spend that year writing trading algorithms and running them on my interactive brokers account or something. Um, and the problem with that is that a lot of what you also absorb is the, the tacit knowledge from people who've been doing this for longer than you and who have, they have more crystallized knowledge, less fluid intelligence. So the things they outsource to the junior people are things where you have to think pretty fast, read pretty fast, but also you're not making the big decisions. You are validating the the somewhat informed intuition of someone who is pattern matching to something they've seen before. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases, right, like this, this has been a theme throughout this episode, right? Is, is intuition overrated or underrated? Yeah, I probably spend, I don't know, average... As opposed to the average person, I probably spend an unhealthy amount of time thinking about this. Relative to the optimal, I'm not sure. Because I, I still think, like, for example, I think asking you about this certainly has has been a marginal good for both me and my uh, listeners. I don't know. Like, like, is this a problem that's worth thinking about? Eh. You can answer that if you want. Do you, do you think this is a problem uh, that's worth thinking about? I think it is... It is a problem worth keeping in mind, but it's fundamentally hard to think about because the disentanglement is so difficult. And right. you know, like a lot of like what you are doing when you're being rigorous is you are applying and then testing your intuition. So um, it's it's tough to separate those two ingredients because they're you know they're both they're both necessary components to the finished product like you you know you can think about people who have just un, undirected or poorly directed curiosity either because of a mental quirk or because they 
you know, took a lot of Adderall or something, and they're just memorizing and compiling facts about something. And there's no real end to it and no real point to it. It's just, you know, six hours later, they know a lot more statistics about Pokemon than they used to. <laughs> um, and that's like, you know, that's, that's very rigorous, right? Um, but it was also probably pointless. So that's, that's a case of misfire and rigor. But then if you, if you do an entirely intuitive process and you just kind of fart around and think about what are the important issues and then you decide on, you decide there is an important issue, whatever it is, and that's it. Um, if you don't ever make contact with reality, then it's kind of pointless. Um, and so like the, the happy middle ground is like you spend some time thinking and you decide, okay, AI X risk is actually more important than Pokemon statistics. And then you have to actually start figuring out, okay, how fast are the GPUs improving and who is buying them and how fast are the models improving? And even if we don't see scaling limits right now, where could we infer that those scaling limits will exist? And by the way, who will deploy them and how will they be deployed? And okay, I should actually go back and see is any real world practitioner thinking this way? And if they're not, given that they have a lot more domain expertise than I do, there's probably a very interesting and informative reason that they're not. And so you you lurch into the rigor mode of, okay, have this high level thesis. Now I'm going to actually turn it into some numbers and, you know, turn it into a date on which I think FOOM happens or an event that I think will happen that will demonstrate that FOOM is not going to happen. And then you, you use that to bootstrap the next set of intuitions on what are the meta problems to solve between then? Like maybe you're an accelerationist, you've concluded that FOOM can't happen because of X. And then you decide, okay, what are, what are the components of X and how do we solve those one by one? Because we, we want to worship our robot overlords as soon as possible. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, there are two, there are two uh, last questions of the show. Um, there used to be only one, which is the second one, but I've been asking a lot of guests about this um, off the show. And a few of them said that they prefer it. Uh, they prefer the audience hearing it too. Um, so what is your, what was your favorite part of the show so far? Um, my, my favorite part was, um, on the question of state capacity and political polarization. I think it's, um, it's an important question. And, um, I think figuring out the extent to which it's a cycle versus a secular trend is useful. And I think it's also, it's always good to get pushback. Um, and you, you can kind of, I can kind of wrap your pushback into the, the state capacity argument and just say, like, we none of the things that the government could plausibly do for us are thing like none of the things that a, a hypothetically good government can do for us um, in the presence of less polarization are actually things that our currently existing government has any hope of accomplishing. And I think that's, that's useful. Um, I don't know that it's true, but it's, um, it's kind of bracing to think that we are actually in the best of all possible worlds and that <laughs> any, any improvement in the effectiveness of government improves its ability to make, make bigger mistakes so um, yeah, that was that was my favorite part. How about you? That's really interesting. What was my favorite part? Um, the last bit about intuition. I think I've been kind of like I've been kind of like dying over that question for a while. I'm not <laughs> sure if it was the best for my viewers. Um, I also like the discussion early on when we were just talking about the um, when we were just talking about kind of um, looking at organizational competence or looking at just like finances and trying to extrapolate from kind of like yeah i'm not sure if this was that interesting for you because it's probably something that you talk a lot about you certainly know a lot about it but it was also very informative for me great 
Uh, yeah, so so the actual actual last question of the show, everyone uh, gets this question. Um, what is something that has too much order and needs more chaos and something that has too much chaos and needs more order? Uh, all right. This will be fun. Let me let me think about this for a little while, okay? Um, yeah. Too much order needs more chaos. Um, yeah, the, the school system, I mean, chaos in the, the day-to-day, you know, can every teacher control their classroom sense? Okay, we need slightly less of that kind of chaos. But I think chaos in the sense of like, if you meet a precocious 12-year-old, can you immediately tell what their parents, like what letter their parents want to get in the mail when that kid is a high school senior? You can, like, I mean, in America, you know their parents want them to go to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. Um, And it would be really interesting to live in a world where there are like, 50 possible outcomes and they're different for every kid and where for some kids they get the admission, like they get the letter saying you're going to Harvard and they're sobbing because they actually wanted to drop out of school and work for SpaceX and they thought they were going to get that, but they got rejected. So they went to their safety. Um, We -hmm. just, I think we need more chaos there because there are the smarter you are in general in the U S today, the more tracked and like the more predictable your career path is until that you suddenly reach this point where you're suddenly, you're supposed to develop the agency that you've been suppressing for a decade plus. And that's, that's a terrible system. I think this is, this is part of why the zoomers are not necessarily okay is that the, the ones who are most effective and best at getting things done are also the ones where their path is a lot more clearly laid out. And then the other piece of that that's pathological is just how much variance there is in the possible outcomes that you can get if you are in the middle of the GPA and standardized test distribution and you're choosing what school to go to. There's probably like an order of magnitude difference in plausible return on investment from different choices you can make, whether it comes down to the pricing of the school or the quality of the majors you're getting or the, the community and what kind of community you would thrive in. There's like huge amounts of variance. So I think um, like a, a, a kind of socially optimal allocation of resources would be, we would actually, like guidance counselors could actually spend more time talking to people who are very much middle of the pack academically and telling them here, like realistically, here is how your different options can play out for you. And some of these options are not for your universities. And then for people at the, at the um, lead end, like it would be nice if we had more things for a, for a super high achieving high school student to do than the universities or apply for a Teal fellowship or maybe drop out and try to get into YC. But even that has become like, it's, you know, nonconformism for conformists at this point, which it's just the curse of success that if you do anything weird and it scales, then it's no longer weird. And you have this adverse selection problem of, are you getting the high variance, high agency people, or are you getting the people who are low variance and low agency, but know how to emulate the previous generation of successes. So that is, um, that's the chaos answer. I hope that works. Oh, that's um, great. Very, very great. thorough. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, what's the, what's and then, the, what, yeah. the order answer. Um, I am, I am not an expert on this because I do, I do write code, but it has never been my job to ship code. It's always been like incidental to other things I've done. Um, I, I worry that we have gotten much, much better at creating technical debt at exactly the time when a lot more of the economy is composable and accessible through software. So um, I, I think we should have 
higher higher standards for documentation, higher standards for architecture, and um, that that engineers should you know think like other like engineers in the physical world, like think about building something that has to last for a long time that people will rely on and where edge cases can be catastrophic because the more the more pure software layers you have in the economy the more any kind of bug has this multiplicative effect and right now we've done we've done okay with the exception of security and security is always it's always the field where the situation is worse than you think because the the biggest hack is always the one that has happened recently it's ongoing and you don't know about it because nobody knows about it except the perpetrator. So I think that's a case where more order would be good. Um, I am fairly hypocritical there in the sense that I use I mostly do coding in Python, um, so I'm not I'm not using um, you know strongly type purely functional stuff for like security and um, legibility reasons. But I I do try to document my code more more than is strictly necessary, and I think that's. Uh, it, it would be good. It'd be good for the world since we will rely more and more on software. It would be good to have more people who know how it works and um, have them write it down somewhere convenient. Right. I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, all right. Uh, that was a surprisingly fast three and a half hours. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I did not think because like the timer, the, the timer reset. So. I did not think this has been going on for that long, but uh, thanks for thanks for joining me for this long. Um, yeah, this was great. fun. Yeah, very thoroughly enjoyable for me as well. Thanks for listening to the season five finale of From the New World. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like I said at the beginning, the best way to help the show is to share and just let a friend know, recommend us, Hopefully, say something that you find uniquely positive about the show. Hopefully, you find something positive uh, about the show. I would be surprised if you were listening if you didn't. And you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review, uh, by commenting, by suggesting some future guests for the show. I always appreciate that. And by checking out the From the New World substack, where I mostly write articles, some related to uh, the topics of the show, particularly AI, and some related to other topics we cover as well.